it all goes back to Tolkien, all the fantasy we're discussing and we'll discuss on the show and any fantasy you read uh, begins with Tolkien. Um, Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit, you know, Silmarillion, you know, towering works of imagination. But as we've discussed before, sometimes people in, in their imitation of something create something truly unique and beautiful. And that's what we have in, in this Dragonlance world of Kryn. It's, you know, we're getting to a point where the writers, uh, the creators of it have now gone from imitation to creating something that is unique in itself, something both less and more than the original source material. And it's this, this part of the, of the series is really uh, instrumental in that. So now we're going into part three of Dragons of Winter Night. When last we left, uh, the companions, they had been split into two groups, of course. Lorana, Sturm, Tasselhoff, and Flint. Um, with uh, one of the, this, you know, prick of a Salamic Knight, Derek Crownguard, are, have taken the Dragon Orb, and they're trying to take it to Sandcrest and give it to the Knights. Or actually, they didn't know that that's what they were going to do, but they were just trying to get it out of there and... and Find what they're find out what they're going to do with it. So this we open with uh, they're camping for the night, and the the that group of companions are being led by Silvara, the Caganesti elf, who has some serious questions surrounding her, and um, nobody quite trusts her, and with good reason. But Gelfinus has now started to fall in love with her, which I thought was pretty quick in this. You know, in this narrative, I thought they kind of forced it, but um, this is a story that continues later on. It's actually very good. So, Gilthanus gets up and he can't sleep thinking about all the things that are happening with his sister and his parents and just the all the elves getting ready to go to civil war with each other. Three groups of elves are on southern. Uh, I think it's southern Urgoth, and uh, remember, they're all. Vying for position to see who's going to be the most powerful. The Sylvanesti believe because they're the pure bloods there should be in control, and the Qualanesti resent that. And then the Caganesti are trapped in the middle because they're now being treated as indentured servants and sometimes outright slaves by the two different groups. I think the Qualanesti treat them slightly better, but slightly better when you're dealing with slavery and indentured servitude is nothing at all. So it's like how West Virginia is treated slightly better than Alabama. <laughs> Or Mississippi. Are we? <laughs> Maybe Mississippi. Um, Gilthanus talk gets up and starts uh, just thinking to himself, quote, Gilthanus sighed. What about himself? He'd wanted to keep the orb in Quell and more. He's talking about the, the dragon orb now. 
He believed that his father was right, or did he? Apparently not, since I'm here, Giltonus told himself. By the gods, his values were getting as muddled as Lorana's. First, his hatred for Tannis, a Tannis uh, hatred he'd nurtured righteously for years, was starting to dwindle away replaced by admiration, even affection. Next, he'd felt his hatred of other races beginning to die. Well, isn't that an awful thing? He'd known few elves as noble sacrificing as a human storm bright blade. And though he didn't like Raceland, he envied the young man's skill. It was something Gilfinus, Gilfinus, a dabbler in magic, had never had the patience or the courage to acquire. Finally, he had to admit even he even liked the kinder and the grumpy old dwarf, but he had never thought he'd fall in love with a wilder elf. And that's when he realized that... You know, I haven't highlighted this part, but I feel it's, you know, something I should say. Quote, there, Giltonus said aloud, I've admitted it. I love her. But was it love, he wondered, or simple physical attraction? At that, he grinned, thinking of Silvara with her dirt-streaked faith, her filthy hair, her tattered clothes. My soul's eye must be seen more clearly than my head, he thought, glancing fondly over at her bedroll. And then he finds that it was empty. He starts to go and see where she's at. Quote, Giltonus walked through the dark forest with no more noise than the shadows of night itself would make. That's a little much. Occasionally, he caught a glimpse of the river glistening faintly through the trees. Then he came to a place where the river, where the water flowing among the rocks had begun, become trapped in a small pool. Here, Gilthany stopped, and his heart almost stopped beating. He had found Silvara. A dark circle of trees started to startly outlined against the racing clouds. The silence of the night was broken only by the gentle murmurs of the Silver River, which fell over rock steps into the pool, and by the slashing sounds that had caught Gilthany's attention. Now he knew what they were. Silvara was bathing. Oblivious to the chill in the air, the elf maid was submerged in the water, her clothes lay scattered on the bank next to a frayed blanket. Only her shoulders and arms were visible to Gilthanus's elven sight. Her head was thrown back as she washed the long hair that trailed out behind her, floating like a dark cobweb in the darker pool. The elf, elf lord held his breath, watching her. He knew he should leave, but he was held fast, entranced. And then the clouds parted. Solinari, the silver moon, only half full, burned in the night sky with a cold brilliance. The water in the pool turned to molten silver. Silvara rose up out of the pool. Silver water glistened on her skin, gleamed in her silver hair, ran in shining rivulets down her body that was painted in silver moonlight. Her beauty struck guilt in his heart with such intense pain that he gasped. Um, she is beautiful. I'd hit it. Um, they get into a discussion. She tries to run because she's afraid. And um, Gilthinus is basically telling her. Um, he ends up telling that he, that he loves her. And um, she loves him back. But it's more complicated than that. You know, had, had they only been what they appear to be, then the, this romance would have been almost doomed from the start um when it was revealed their true nature which i'm foreshadowing here then it's surely doomed to fail but uh as he talks to her she draws close to him and then they end up from what i can gather from this banging it out quote reaching out she she shyly put one hand around his neck and drew him near and then as he kissed her he felt the other hand the hand that had been clasping the blanket around her body move up to caress his face silvar's blanket slipped unnoticed into the stream and was borne away by the silver water um yeah that's pretty pretty uh, clear um the companions now reach the headwaters of the river um they're being uh it's pretty clear that they're being pursued by the quow nasty maybe even some silver nasty elves i don't know it doesn't quite uh doesn't quite say who i don't really think um but we start the chapter with a uh, description of their their plight 
quote, at noon the next day, the companions were forced to abandon the boats, having reached the river's headwaters where it flowed down out of the mountains. Here the water was shallow and frothy white from the tumbling rapids ahead. Many Caganesti boats were drawn up on the bank. Drawing their, dragging their boats ashore, the companions were met by a group of Caganesti elves coming out of the woods. They carried with them the bodies of two young elven warriors. Some drew weapons and would have attacked had not Theros Ironfeld and Silvera, Silvara heard to talk with them. So, um... They, there's arguments over, um, the Kaganesti think that the humans in the white wing ships, um, were coming from, or brought the draconians and they basically, uh, are arguing the fact, uh, and then Theros and Silvara pledged their lives for good conduct, uh, for all the companions good conduct, which is a big thing because the Kaganesti will kill you if, you know, if they find out that you're playing them false or something like that, they're, they're pretty, uh, I discussed this before. Um, there's so many different types of elves on Korean. Um, the Kaganesti compared to some groups would be considered downright civilized. Um, as I, I discussed the, the Chasai in, and the, uh, plains elves, the Hosky in, uh, in Taladus. There's also another group called the, um, the holder folk, who live in parts of Taladus and I think probably even in parts of uh, Ancelon, but they are f- essentially fairies. Like they have embraced their fairy nature and they do not interact with the, with that. They, they are, they're what you consider a classic before Tolkien version of elves where they, they hide in the woods and they, you know, are very insular and they don't, have contact with the outside world. They wear leaves. You know, they're very Sylvan, you know, what uh, the description is Sylvan. And, um, you know, I always found them fascinating. Um, they're not included in any stories that I know of. Uh, just the descriptions like the source books for Taladus are some of the best world building I've ever read. I mean, they're, you know, from the different types of elves to the Minotaur league, which is one of the coolest things ever. It's an Minotaur empire. And uh, when you said league, I pictured like a bunch of dudes playing flag football. On a, <laughs> yeah, on their Saturdays because you know they're they're getting up there, but they but they still want to compete, but they right. get hurt. Right. <laughs> um, they're the Minotaurs are actually from Ancelon and and spread to Taladus and conquered everybody, of course, because they're eight feet tall and peerless warriors. So um, anyway. Um, Gilthinus, you know, as they're going, uh, we get a description of Savara, which I thought was, you know, finally a good description of her, not just talking about how dirty she was. Quote, Silvara had, had found time among her people to change her clothing. She was now dressed as a Caganesti woman in a long leather tunic over leather breeches covered by her by a heavy fur cloak. With her hair washed and combed, all of them could see how she had come by her name. Her hair, a strange metallic silver color, flowed from a peak on her forehead to fall about her shoulders in radiant beauty. She is a beautiful woman. Um, she leads them now into the mountains. To a place her people have talked about, so she says, you know, it's it's odd how she knows all these things. Um, the next morning, though, uh, that old scamp Tasselhoff is the one to uh, to find to discover that they're being Here pursued. Comes. Here comes our boy. Well, this is not uh, this is not f- something funny he does yet, but there's plenty of that in this in this uh, part of it. Also, a lot of tragedy in this part. Well, not tragedy yet, but 
uh, introducing tragedy. Quote, the next morning, Tasselhoff, squeezing up through a crack in the cave's hidden entrance to take a look around, suddenly hurried back inside. Putting his finger to his lips, Taz motioned them to follow him outdoors. Theris pushed aside the huge boulder they had rolled across the mouth of the cave, and the companions crept after Taz. He led them to a stop not 20 feet from the cave and pointed grimly at the white snow. On it were footprints, fresh enough that the blowing, drifting snow had not quite covered them. The light, delicate tracks had not sunk deeply in the snow. No one spoke. There was no need. Everyone recognized the crisp, clear outline of elven boots. Um, so they know, uh, they definitely know they're being pursued, which they had suspected anyway. Um, as they're getting ready to leave, Sarvara tells them that they can go deeper in the mountains, but, uh, Lorana catches her doing something, um, on the, as they're just about to leave. Quote, behind Silvara on the cold floor of the cave, Lorana thought she saw the dragon orb, its crystal surface shining with a strange swirling light. But before she could look more closely, Silvara swiftly dropped her cloak over the orb. As she did so, Lorana noticed she kept standing in front of whatever it was she had been handling on the floor. Um, they start to, Lorana, you know, tries to go in there. Silvara tries to urge her out. Obviously, something's going on. Quote, Lorana walked to the back of the shallow cave. Looking down, however, she could see nothing that made any sense. There was a tangle of twigs and bark and charred wood. Some stones, but that was all. If it was a sign, it was a clumsy one. Lorana kicked at it with her booted foot, scattering the stones and sticks. Then she turned and took Silvara's arm. There, Lorana said, speaking in even, quiet tones, whatever message you left for your friends will be difficult to read. doesn't make any sense, though. I mean, if she's trying to escape with them and lead them, uh, you know, in the mountains, why would she, you know, signal to others that, that meant them harm? Um then as, they're, then as they go, though, uh, they, arrows start being shot at them. Um, you know, predictably, Derek Crownguard, being the most slamming, wants to fight him. But um, Sarvara says she'll, um, she'll take him to this pass in the mountains. Um, Lorana uh, tries to, you know, defuse the situation and, and get them to not fight. Quote, they're not aiming to kill, Lorana said. If they were, you would be dead now. We must run for it. We can't fight here anyhow. She just read the thick woods. We can defend the pass better. Put your sword away, Derek Sturm said, drawing his blade, or you'll fight me first. That's a big thing right there. You're a coward, Bright Blade, Derek shouted, his voice shaking with fury. You're running from the enemy. No, Sturm answered coolly. I'm running for my friends. The knight kept his sword drawn. Get moving, Crown Guard, or the elves will find that they arrived too late to take you prisoner. That is kind of... That is, that's an extreme reaction and a threat that probably wasn't well advised. He's he's Sturm is threatening this guy to kill him when he's trying to stand and fight. Um, seeing his side of it, you know, I can't entirely fault Derek Crownguard for what happens later. You know, um, but Sturm has now. Um, He's now thrown his thrown his dice when it comes to the knighthood, and we'll we'll deal with that later. Servara tells him that she knows a place um, to go, but she also insists that um, that Derek and Sturm take the orb and run one direction, while Theros, Lorana, Gilthanus, Taz, Flint, and herself go in another direction. She's going to take them to a secret place to hide. Um, she suggests they could start an avalanche to cover their tracks, all that stuff. Um, it's, you know, it's an odd thing. 
um, Sturm and Derek agree to go uh, before, not before Derek says to Sturm that he will see to it that he doesn't become a knight. Ever remember, Sturm's not a knight. He hasn't gone through the trials. He hasn't done anything that you're supposed to. He's not been formally initiated. Sort of a Jon Snow situation, right? Um, what do you mean? Well, Jon Snow was never a knight, but he definitely could have been, should have been. Well, you know no, it's I mean? it's more of maybe a knight, knights. Well, knights in Westeros are knights because they follow the seven. Let's just talk about Westeros for the rest of the show. <laughs> We'll get to Westeros eventually. <laughs> um, we got to do these smaller books first before we can tackle something that Herculean. Um, That's what all seven of the people that listen to this are waiting for. Well, we get 18 plays, so it's at least 18. Well, they're wanting for that. Uh, well, you know, they, they click play, then they stop listening. Oh, right, there you they go. Know, after they realize we're not talking about Game of Thrones. Right. Even though it says in the title. Yeah. I mean, I mean the goddamn they're, picture they're, on the thing is of the cover of the book we're talking about. Right. But whatever. I'm sure we get some stragglers. Um Cards. Anyway, um, but Savara insists keeping the, the the broken part of the Dragonlance, um, and Lorana questions her, screams at her, basically. Quote, Savara didn't answer. She simply shrugged and stared at Lorana with blue, eyes bluer than midnight. Lorana felt her will being drained by those blue, blue eyes. She was reminded terrifyingly of Raceland. Gilthanus, too, stared at Savara with a perplexed and worried expression. Theros stood grim and stern, glancing at Lorana as if beginning to share her doubts. But they were not able to move. They were completely under Savara's control. Yet what had she done to them? They could only stand and stare at the wilder elf as she walked calmly over to where Lorana had wearily let her fall her fall her pack bending down Silvara unwrapped the broken piece of splintered wood then she raised it in the air sunlight flashed on Silvara's silver hair mimicking the flash from Storm Shield the Dragonlance stays with me Silvara said glancing around swiftly at, around the spellbound group she added as do you um, I think it's obvious now that Silvara is far more than what she seems um, we are shortly going to find exactly what she is um, but you know at first she's just was a regular uh i wonder if she made herself dirty to seem less than what she was she probably had to um that's why i dress like a like a loser so i seem less amazing yeah i I, damn i I dress like a schlub um as they keep going they they enter a um hold on let me get my notes here as they keep going she she's taking them deeper into the mountain pass and um, again, they keep arguing over what's going on. Um, they're starting to question her again. And Gilthana asked her about the dragon orb. Um, and she answers, quote, don't ask me. Silvara's voice was suddenly deep and filled with sadness. Her blue eyes stared into Gilthanus with such love that he could not bear to face her. He shook his head, avoiding her gaze. Silvara caught hold of his arm. Please, Shalori, beloved. Trust me. Remember what we talked about at the pool. You said you had to do these things, defy your people, become an outcast because of what you believed in your heart. I said that I understood that I had to do the same. Didn't you believe me? Gilthanus stood in a moment, his head bowed. I believed you, it said softly. Reaching out, he pulled her to him, kissing her silver hair. We'll go with you. Come on, Lorana. Arms around each other, the two trudge off through the snow. Um, then we have a Theros coming to her defense, basically. Quote, I lived in this world nearly 50 years, young woman, he said gently. Not long to you elves, I know. But we, we humans live those years. We don't just let them drift by. That's kind of a little, kind of a little jab right there. Isn't it? And I'll tell you this. That girl loves your brother as truly as ever seen woman love man. And he loves her. Such love cannot come to evil. That's a very naive statement. For the sake of their love alone, I'd follow them into the dragon's den. Um, 
Sturm. I mean, Flint says something. Quote, for the sake of my cold feet, I'd fall into a dragon's den if he'd warm my toes. Flint stamped the ground. Come on, let's go. Grabbing the kinder, he dragged Taz along after the blacksmith. Um, they, uh, they travel east, and um, then they come to a frog, sh- uh, this, a fog shroud of valley. Um, it's, it's starting to get really warm where, it, you know, it's winter. That's another thing about her. She was able to bathe in that pool. You know, it seems odd that somebody that that a because the elves are both more fragile and more and more durable than humans. Like it's weird; they're not as physically strong, but they don't get sick. They don't, you know what I mean. But you know, I would I would imagine that they would feel the elements as much as we do. They they might be like uh, Legolas, who was able to, you know, just. You know, in Lord of the Rings, he was able to basically put himself in a trance and walk through snow and not feel it, you know, but they're going, they can get frostbite and things like that, I would assume. Um, not in, not in Middle Earth, because the, as I already discussed, the elves in Middle Earth are essentially gods. They're angels. They, the, the skin they wear is basically a cloak over what they actually are. So, um, to make them appear. Well, they are that. They are that, but they're, but they're not. It's a very odd thing. They've they discussed before, like uh, in one part of it, you know that part where uh, Liv Tyler squared off against the nine was created for was created for the movie. That didn't happen. Like what happened was is there's a I don't know how to tell you this, but I don't think any of this really happened. Well, I mean, I'm I'm <laughs> I'm saying that that didn't happen in the book. What I'm saying is is that there was an elf lord that Aragorn and them met who. Uh, Along with the water, you know, trying, them trying to cross crossing the Rivendell and the, and the water sweeping them over, there was an elf lord who he said he unsheathed actually what he was, and it scared the nine off. That's how powerful the elves are. So, um, again, that's troublesome because there's a world full of elves. How was Sauron ever able to do that? But anyway. Um, that's a different book. It is. And uh, as I said before, Middle Earth, they're very overpowered. Even the humans in there live for 200 years. Um but then Savara uh, tells them where they are. Quote, this is Foghaven Vale, Savara replied in answer to their questions. Long years ago, before the cataclysm, it was one of the most beautiful places on, upon Kryn, so my people say. It might still be beautiful, Frank grumbled, if we could see it through this confounded mist. No, said Silvara sadly. Like much else in the world, the beauty of Foghaven was, has vanished. Once the fortress of Foghaven floated above the mist as if floating on a cloud. The rising sun colored the mist pink in the morning, burned them off at midday so that the soaring spires of the fortress could be seen for miles. In the evening, the fog returned to cover the fortress like a blanket. By night, the silver and the red moon shone on the mist with a shimmering light. Pilgrims came from all parts of Kryn. Silvara stopped abruptly. We'll make camp here tonight. They start question, keep questioning her, and she keeps evading their questions. Basically, um, one of the one of the you know they're picking up, but Gilthanus is now you know completely in love with her. Um, he they're laying down for the night, and he tries to talk to her. Quote: When we return from Sandcrest after the Council of Whitestone, we can be married. Gilthanus said softly to Silvara as they lay together wrapped in his blanket. The girl stirred in his arms. He felt her soft hair rub against his cheek, but she did not answer. Don't worry about my father, Gilthanus said, smiling, stroking the beautiful hair that shone even in the darkness. He'll be stern and grim for a while, but I'm the younger brother. No one cares, cares what becomes of me. Portheus will rant and rave and carry on, but will ignore him. We don't have to live with my people. I'm not sure I'd fit in with yours, but I could learn. I'm a good shot with a bow. I'd like, to, I'd like our children to go up in the wilderness free and happy. 
And then she starts to cry. Gilthin has held her, held her close as she buried her face in his, in his shoulder, sobbing bitterly. There, there, he whispered soothingly, smiling in the darkness. Women were such funny creatures. He wondered what he'd said. Hush, Silvari, Murdy. It will be all right. And Gilthin fell asleep, dreaming of silver-haired children running in the green woods. Um, Silvar wakes him up later um, to keep going. Quote, feeling more tired than if she hadn't slept, Lorana packed her things by reflex and stood waiting, shivering in the darkness. Next to her, she heard the dwarf groan. The damp air was making his joints ache painfully. The journey had been hard on Flint, Lorana realized. He was, after all, what, almost 150 years old, a respectable age for a dwarf. His face had lost some of its color during his illness on the voyage. His lips, barely visible beneath the beard, had a bluish tinge, and occasionally he pressed his hand against his chest. It's worrisome. But he always stoutly insisted he was fine and kept up with him on the trail. Um, Tasselhoff, of course, is raring to go. Um, they keep going into this uh, warm fog shrouded valley and then they come to um this bridge it's called the bridge of passage you know as much as i love the writing sometimes it's not you know in in parts and i, and I as again I've, I've talked with margaret weiss on twitter before like you know i think we even exchange a couple private you know direct messages she's an awesome lady but they were younger than me you know this was they, they were very young when they wrote these books so sometimes, you know, in fantasy especially, some things will be, you know, they're not be the best descriptions or ironically unimaginative, but they're just trying to, you know, uh, tell the story. If you think about it, every bridge is a bridge of passage. Well, that's what I was saying. It's yes. like there there could have been another name for that. Quote, the bridge of passage was a long, smooth arch of pure white marble. Along its sides, carved in vivid relief, long columns of knights walked symbolically across the bubbling streams. The span was so high that they could not see the top through the swirling mists. And it was so old, so old that Flint, reverently touching the worn rock with his hand, could not recognize the craftsmanship. It was not dwarven, not elven, not human. Who had done such marvelous work? Um, you know, it's a very old thing. Um but uh, it's it's relating to a place that's very important, uh, something that's been discussed at length in the books. Um, quote, they could see once more, and now they could see Silvara, a dark, shadowy outline against the silvery mist. She stood at the foot of the bridge, staring up in the sky. They've already crossed it. Slowly, she raised her hands, and slowly the mist parted. No, they haven't crossed it yet. I'm sorry. Uh, looking up, the companions saw the mist separate like long, graceful fingers to reveal the silver moon, full and brilliant in the starry sky. Savar spoke strange words, and the moonlight poured down upon her, bathing her in its light. The moonlight showed upon the bubbling waters, making them come alive, dancing with silver. It showed upon the marble bridge, giving life to the knights who spent eternity crossing the stream. That's actually a very good passage right there, I feel. But it was not these beautiful sights that caused the companions to clasp each other with shaking hands or to hold each other closely. The moonlights in the water did not cause Flint to repeat the name of Reorks in the most reverent prayer he ever uttered, or cause Lorana to lean her head against her brother's shoulder, her eyes dim with sudden tears, or cause Gelfinus to hold her tightly, overwhelmed by feeling of fear and awe and reverence. Soaring high above him, so tall its head might have torn a moon from the sky, was a figure of a dragon, carved out of a mountain of rock, shining silver in the moonlight. Where are, where are we, Laura asked in a hushed voice. What is this place? When you cross the bridge of passage, you will stand before the monument of the silver dragon, answered Silvar softly. It guards the tomb of Huma, not of Salamnia. Remember the legendary Huma, um, who 
Derek Crownguard and most of the Slamic Knights believe was a legend or his deeds were exaggerated. Basically, he's a Santa Claus type figure to them by this point. Um, you know, dragons, of course, were not seen as something real either by a lot of people. This is a world that magic has not died out, but it's become something that's, you know, one of the things I've always loved about Crean is that magic is commonplace, but yet it isn't. Like, um, the pe- most people live normal, especially humans, live normal, isolated, medieval style lives. They, you have blacksmiths, you have farmers, you have all that stuff. They don't ever, excuse me, <clears throat> smiths of color. I knew you were going to say that. Um, they all live, you know, even though the, the world they live in has some fantastical things, to them it's not fantastical. It's, you know, griffins and, and some of these, uh, you know, things that live in this world are just animals. They're not magical creatures to them. Um, elves, some people, most people have never met an elf, never talked to an elf. And they, I, I would think that a percentage of them would think that elves aren't even real. You know, because you would think, how is that possible? Well, it doesn't take much for people to doubt something's existence. Something, especially something so powerful and you know majestic as an elf lord or something like that, they just don't think it's real because it makes them feel less. You know, um, people who travel know better. I think dwarves would be considered just different kind of people. You know, they're and Kender a annoying different kind of people. So you know that's the world we're in. So that's one of the things I like about. Crean is it's they they don't break the rule of don't have magic everything or it ruins the importance game of thrones does that and and uh westeros does that it, you know there is hard there's no magic in 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 the world of westeros or essos or any of that essentially um there is later on but that's you know story for another time um Quote, in Solinari's light, the bridge of passage across the bubbling streams of Foghaven Vale gleamed like bright pearls threaded on a silver chain. Do not feel fear, Silvara said again. The crossing is difficult only for those who seek to enter the tomb for evil purposes. But the companions remained unconvinced. Fearfully, they climbed the few stairs leading up to the bridge itself. Then hesitantly, before they stepped upon... They stepped upon the bridge, the marble arch that rose before them, glistening wet with the steam from the springs. Silvara crossed first, walking lightly and with ease. The rest followed her more cautiously, keeping to the very center of the marble span. Um, We get a nice, you know, I'll leave Tasselhoff to um, lighten it up some. And the the relationship between Taz and Flint, um, they're crossing over hot springs, of course. so, quote, well, I bet that water's so hot you could cook meat in it, Tessifoff said. Lying flat on his stomach, he peered over the edge of the highest part of the arched bridge. I'll bet it could cook you, stuttered the terrified dwarf, crawling across on his, on his hands and knees. Look, Flint, watch. I've got this piece of meat in my pack. I'll get a string, and we'll load it into the water. Get moving, Flint roared. Tess sighed and closed his pouch. You're no fun to take anywhere, he complained, and he slid down on the other side of the span on the seat of his pants. Um, I love that. You know, just the... Tasselhoff always seeing the joy and adventure and things. I wish I could live my life more like that. I'm more like Flint. You know, I things bother me. I get disturbed. I'm an old man, essentially. So um, Tasselhoff is eternally a child. You know, he sees the wonder in things. And even when he's going to die, he's like, this is going to be interesting. I'm getting there. The, the, once I die, I don't know what's going to happen. I'm so curious to see what happens, you know. Um, 
like I said, one of the funniest things he ever does in, in, in the series is there's a death knight named Lord Soth, who we'll, we will meet later. Um, he's a, he's a disgraced Salamic knight who did some terrible shit and he could have stopped the cataclysm coming and he didn't. And he's now, and all his knights are skeleton warriors and he is immensely powerful. He can literally kill a dragon just by pointing at it and saying, die, you know, he's that powerful. He's one of the most powerful beings on Kryn and he's terrifying. He's got, he wears a helmet and it's wrapped up and his eyes glow orange. He's just the picture of a specter and Tasselhoff is so, Fascinating by it. he just comes up and sticks his hand out and says, Hi, I'm Tasselhoff. You know, and Lord Soth just kind of looks down at him and everybody's like, What the fuck are you doing? You know? So um Um but they keep going. Uh, quote, Lorana hesitated. Her gaze once went once again to this huge stone dragon whose head was crowned with stars. The stone mouth was open in a silent cry, and the stone eyes stared fiercely. The stone wings were carved out of the sides of the mountain. A stone claw stretched forth as massive as the trunks of a hundred Valenwood trees. Remember how big Valenwood, Valenwood trees are. Um, Servara, Lorana asked Silvara some questions. She asked if human's body is in there. Um, Sora says no his body disappeared and and the lance he carried the dragon lance um so Laurent is trying to argue it Gilthinus basically tells her she's acting like a spoiled child um it's a whole big thing trying to find out um you know this is odd all this stuff going on that this this elf woman knows all these things and is revealing herself to be extremely powerful um but then they come upon a um hold on a second. They come upon a ring of statues. Um and uh it's statues of the companions. They see one of Raceland, Caraman, you know, all these different ones, Tannis. And um they of course find that odd. I mean, who they're just re- to them they're just regular people, you know, who would build statues to them. And turns out this is a magical thing basically that the that this place keeps out evil people by showing what they most fear. And but for people who are there for good, it just, you know, encourages them to come in basically. I mean, it was it's not well explained. It's one of these things that I'm sure was a part of a Dragonlance module they were playing and then they put it in the book because they needed a transition. Um Uh, the it's no reason to really um, explain beyond that. It's just big stone statues of them. But then they come to a building in the center of all these statues. Quote, the simple rectangular building thrust up in the fog from an oct- oct- octagonal base of shining steps. It, too, was made of obsidian, and the black structure glistened wet with a perpetual fog. Each feature stood out if it had been carved only days before. No sign of wear marred the sharp, clean lines of the carving. Its knights, each bearing the dragon lance, still charged huge monsters. Dragons screamed silently in frozen death, pierced by the long, delicate shafts. Inside this temple, they placed Huma's body, Savaris. Savaris said softly as she led them up the stairs. Cold bronze doors swung open on silent hinges to Savaris' touch. The companions stood uncertainly on the stairs and encircled the column temple. But as Gelthinus has said, they could sense no evil coming from this place. Lorana remembered vividly the tomb of the royal guard in, Sl- in the Slamori and the terror generated by the undead, undead guards left to keep eternal watch over their dead king. 
Keth Canaan. In this temple, however, she felt only sorrow and loss, tempered by the knowledge of a great victory, a battle won at terrible cost, but bringing with it eternal peace and sweet restfulness. Lorana felt her burden ease, her heart become lighter. Her own sorrow and loss seemed diminished here. She was reminded of her own victories and triumphs. One by one, all the companions entered the tomb. The bronze door swung shut behind them, leaving them in total darkness. So they walk into the temple. Uh, this is what they see there. Quote, it was empty except for a beer carved out of obsidian, which stood in the center of the room. Not a beer as in a drinking beer. A beer as in something you put a body on. Um, chiseled images of knights supported the beer, but the body of the knight that was supposed to have rest upon it was gone. An ancient shield lay at the foot, and a sword, a sword similar to Sturm's lay near the shield. The companions gazed at these artifacts in silence. It seemed a dese- desecration to the sorrowful serenity of the place to speak, and none touched them, not even Tesselhoff. I wish Sturm could be here, murmured Lana, looking around, coming to her eyes. This must be human resting place, yet. Um, she starts to feel uneasy for some reason. Um, Savara goes around and she's like lighting torches. Quote, Savara lit more torches along the wall and the companions walked past the beer, gazing around the tomb curiously. It was not large. The beer stood in the center of st- and stone benches lined the walls, pre- presumably for the mourners to rest upon while paying their respects. At the far end stood a small stone altar. Carved in its surface were the symbols of the orders of the knights, the crown, the rose, the kingfisher. Dried rose petals and herbs lay scattered on the top, their fragrance still lingering sweetly in the air after hundreds of years. Below the altar, sung to the stone floor, was a large iron plate. Um, Lorana sees a like a stone, like a an iron plate covering this hole in the floor, and you know, she asks if it's a well, and uh, Theros said, let's see, and he um, bends over, and of course, being both immensely strong naturally with that silver arm, he's able to pick it up easily. So Mara comes back, and she's freaked out that um, that he did it, and she's like, stay away from there. Um, you know, um, it's just a, it's a, a hole. A, a musty odor comes from it. Um, and of course, Taz tries to crowd forward seeing and um, Savara gets even more alarmed. Quote, stay away from it, please, Savara begged. She's right, little thief. Thera grabbed, Theris grabbed Taz and pulled him away from the hole. If you fell in there, you might tumble through to the other side of the world. Really? Asked Taz, Tessahoff breathlessly. Would I really fall to the other side of the other side, Theros? I wonder what it would be like. Would there be people there like us? Not like Kinders, hopefully, grumbled, or they'd all be dead of idiocy by now. Besides, anyone knows that the world rests on the anvil of reorks. I like the fact that he's, he's very, you know, he's very old manish. He minces no words. Well, but he's also like, his faith is devout, you know, even. You know, he's 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 a typical old man, basically. Um, but he keeps going. Those falling to the other side are caught between his hammer blows and the world still being forged. People on the other side, indeed. He snorted as he watched Theris unsuccessfully try to replace the plate. Tassahoff was still staring at it curiously. Finally, Theris was forced to give up, but he glared at the kinder until Taz heaved a sigh and wandered away for the stone beard to stare with long eyes at the shield and sword. Um, Then Flint starts to notice, look at really look at the stonework, and he's um, he comments. He knows stone. I mean, dwarves know stone and mining and all that stuff. Carving, they're just they know it in their bones. It's, it's a part of their it's a part of their people. It's like you know, it's what they do. It's what they're created to do. So um, he says uh, all of this, the stuff inside. The bridge and all that stuff, you know, well, not the bridge itself, but most of the stuff was carved by um, 
or were carved by men. Um, and that, but then he says uh, that the dragon outside was built by not the hands of man or elf or dwarf. He knows. Um, then he says, uh, then Lorana says, quote, it must have been a creature with awesome strength, Lorana murdered murmured a huge creature with wings with wings lorana murmured suddenly she stopped talking her blood chilled in fear as she heard words being chanted words she recognized a strange spider language of magic um it's you know it was silvara quote silvara stood behind beside the altar crumbling rose petals in her hand chanting softly lorana fought the enchanted drowsiness that crept over her she fell to her knees cursing herself for a fool clinging to the stone bench for support but it did no good Lifting her sleep, lifting her sleep gazed eye, glazed eyes, she thought, saw Theros topple over and Giltinus slump to the ground. Beside her, the dwarf was snoring even before his head hit the bench. Lorana heard a clattering sound, the sound of a shield crashing to the floor, then the air was filled with the, with the fragrance of roses. Silvara put him to sleep, magically. Um, it's a pretty advanced spell, in this world anyway, in some other, especially the Forgotten Realms world, that would have been, you would could do that as easily as breathing, you know, but I like that here that it's, you know, pretty powerful spell, but one person who wasn't put to sleep, of course, uh, as we all would have known, quote, Tasselhoff heard Silvara chanting, recognized the words of a magic spell. He reacted instinctively, grabbed hold of the shield that lay on the beer and pulled the heavy shield fell on top of him, striking the floor with a ringing clang, flattening the kinder. The shield covered Taz completely. He lay still beneath until he heard Silvara finish her chant. Even then, he'd waited a few moments to see if he was going to turn into a frog or go up in flames or something interesting like that. He didn't, rather to his disappointment. He couldn't even hear Silvara. Finally, growing bored, lying in the darkness of the cold stone floor, Taz, Taz crept out from beneath the heavy shield with the silence of a falling feather. Um, he sees they're all asleep. Um, but then he sees Silvara, and she's talking to herself, and she's crying. Um Quote, how can I go through with it, Taz heard her say to herself. I've brought them here. Isn't that enough? No. She shook her head in misery. No, I've sent the orb away. They don't know how to use it. I must break the oath. It's as you said, sister, the choice is mine, but it's hard. I love him. Um, Taz Hoff doesn't know what the hell's going on with that, so he thinks he's, he'll, he'll now go, he'll now go look at that hole that uh, Theros was keeping him from looking at. Um Quote, the kinder tiptoed around the beer until the, he came to the altar. There was the hole still gaping open. Ferris lay behi- beside it, sound asleep, his head pulled on his silver arm. Glancing back at Silvara, Tess sneaked silently to the edge. Um, in his way, he convinces himself that's a better place to hide than <laughs> this hole. Um, you know, it's because he wants to climb down in there. Um, he climbs down, then he sees these huge gems. Quote, Reorks's beard, he swore. He was fond of this oath, having borrowed it from Flint. Six beautiful jewels, each as big around as his hand, were spaced in a horizontal ring around the walls of the shaft. They were covered with moss, but Taz could tell at a glance how valuable they were. Now, why would anyone put such wonderful jewels down here, he asked aloud. I'll bet it was some thief. If I could pry them loose, I would turn them to their rightful owner. His hand closed over a jewel. Uh, he's so, God, he's such a great character. I like the fact that he's a thief, but he doesn't even know it. He's convincing himself that he's right. doing the right thing. Yeah, he is. He is. His somebody own, walking around out there that is missing their jewel. He's he's his own enabler. Like he, <laughs> um, a tremendous blast of wind filled the shaft, pulling the kinder off the wall as easily as a winter gale rips a leaf off a tree. Falling, 
Taz looked back up, watching the light of the top of the shaft grow smaller and smaller. He wondered briefly just how big the hammer of Reorks was, and then he stopped falling. For a moment, the wind tumbled in end over end, then it switched directions, blowing him sideways. I'm not going to the other side of the world, after all, he thought sadly. Sighing, he's, he, I love that. He, he's like, yes! Aw. <laughs> he sailed along, sighing, he sailed along through another tunnel. Then he suddenly felt himself start to rise. A great wind was wafting him up the shaft. It was an unusual sen- sensation, quite exhilarating. Instinctively, he spread his arms to see if he could touch the sides of whatever it was he was in. As he spread his arms, he noticed that he rose faster, borne gently upward on swift currents of air. Um, he comes to another chamber, though, um, and he steps out into it, um, and he decides to explore, of course. Um, quote, several torches flared on the walls, illuminating the chamber with a bright white radiance. This room was certainly much larger than the tomb. He was standing at the bottom of a great curving staircase. The huge flagstones of each step, as well as all the other stones in the room, were pure, wa- pure white, much different from the black stone of the tomb. The staircase curved to the right, leading up to what appeared to be another level of the chamber. Above him, he could see a railing overlooking the stairs. Apparently, there was some sort of balcony up there. Nearly breaking his neck trying to see, Taz thought he could make out the swirls and splotches of bright colors shining in a torchlight from the opposite wall um he comes to a, a a huge painting it's much like the one that he saw on pax starcast but we remembered that Fizban wiped his memory basically um quote reorks's beard he said softly look at that that was a painting a mural to be more precise it began opposite where taz was standing at the head of the stairs and extended on around the balcony and foot after foot of shimmering color the kinder was not much interested in artwork but he couldn't recall ever seeing anything quite so beautiful or had he somehow it seemed familiar yes the more he looked at it, the more he thought he'd seen it before Taz studied the painting, trying to remember. On the wall directly across from him was pictured a horrible scene of dragons of every color and description descending upon the land. Towns blazed in flames like Tarsus. Buildings crumbled. People were fleeing. It was a terrible sight, and the kinder hurried past it. He continued to walk along the balcony, his eyes on the painting. He had just reached the central portion of the mural when he gasped. The Dragon Mountain, that's it. There on the wall, he whispered to himself and was startled to hear his whisper come echoing back to him. Glancing around and... and Hastily, he crept close to the edge of the balcony. Leaning over the rail, he stared close, closely at the painting. It was indeed, it indeed showed the Dragon Mountain where he was now. Only this showed a view of the mountain <coughs> as if some giant sword had chopped it in half vertically. Um, it's a map. It's a map of where they are. And it's, um, he, he discovers he's in the throat of the dragon they saw. This is, this is the tomb that thing took him like the giant stone dragon. Um, And then he continues, quote, Tasselhoff continued on around the balcony, hoping to find a clue in the painting. On the right side of the gallery, another battle was portrayed, but this one didn't fill him with horror. There were red dragons and black and blue and white, breathing fire and ice, but fighting them were other dragons, dragons of silver and gold. I remember, shouted Tasselhoff. The, the kinder began jumping up and down, yelling like a wild thing. I remember, I remember. It was in Pax Tharkas. Fizban showed me there are good dragons in the world. They'll help us fight the evil ones. We just have to find them. And then there and there are dragon lances. Confound it, snarled a voice below the, the kinder. Can a person get some sleep? What is all this racket? You're making enough noise to wake the dead. Um He grabs his knife and whirls around. Of course he wouldn't he wouldn't expect anybody to be in there, because you know. Um but he sees someone and it's quite a shock. 
Quote, Tezahoff's knife clattered to the floor. The kinder sagged back against the railing. For the first, last, and only time in his life, Tezahoff Burfoot was struck speechless. Nothing came out of his throat, only a croak. Well, what is it? Speak up, snapped the old man looming over him. You were making enough noise a minute ago. What's the matter? Something go down the wrong way? Taz stuttered weakly. Ah, poor boy, afflicted, eh? Speech impediment. Sad. Sad. Here, the old man fumbled in his robes, opening numerous numerous pouches while Tezahoff stood trembling before him. Can you guess who this might be? Bill Goldberg. It'd be awesome if he was. He'd just shoulder block all the dragons and save Korean. Um, there, the figure said, drawing forth a coin, he put it in the kinder's numb palm and closed his small, lifeless fingers around. Now, run along, find a cleric. Fizzban, Tasselhoff was finally able to gasp. Where? The old man whirled around, raising his staff. He peered fe- fearfully in the darkness. Then something seemed to occur to him. Turning back around, he asked Taz in a loud whisper, I say, are you sure you saw this Fizzban? Isn't he dead? Um, Taz informs him that he is Fizban. Um, it's, it's such. I wish I could read the whole thing. You know, read the whole thing. You know, but we I do have some time constraints. Um, uh, Taz tells him that he's Fizban, and quote, "No, really." The old man said, taken aback, "I was feeling a bit under the weather this morning, but I had no idea it was as bad as all that." His shoulder sagged. So I'm dead. Done for. Bought the farm. Kicked the bucket. He staggered to a bench and plopped down. Was it a nice funeral, you asked? Did lots of people come? Was there a 21-gun salute? <laughs> <laughs> I always wanted a 21-gun salute. <laughs> I, uh, Tasta- well, I mean, that's, he's, he's, a, he's a very powerful being. He has probably been to Earth. I, uh, Taz stammer- stammered, wondering what a gun was. What was more, <laughs> what was more of a memorial service, you might say. You see, we uh, couldn't find your, how shall I put this? Remains, the old man said helpfully. Um, and he he tells about chicken feathers. Fizzman gets upset. Um, tells him what was going on. Um, he tells uh, he tells him about everything that happened. You know, Riverwind and Goldwyn's funeral. You know, he does typical Fizzman things by saying things funny. Him and Tasselhoff have a great. They would be a great two man comedy team. And ironically, um. Tasselhoff would be the straight man in this in this scenario. Usually, the straight man is Flint, and Tasselhoff is the comedy guy. But that that situation gets turned on its head here. Um, then he says he remembers Tasselhoff. Um, then uh, he mentions Silvara, and his demeanor. Uh, Fizzman's demeanor changes drastically. Quote, Silvara, the old man leaped to his feet, his white hair flying out wildly. The vague look faded from his face. Where is she, the old man demanded sternly. And your friends, where are they? Downstairs, stammered Taz. Started the old man's transformation. Silvara cast a spell on them. And then, you know, um, he he asked where they are. He said, Huma's tomb. And uh, then Fizzban says, well, at least we don't have to walk. Quote, descending the stairs to the hole in the floor Taz came up through, the old man stepped in out into its center. Taz, gulping a little, joined him, clutching at the old man's robes. They hung suspended over nothing but darkness, feeling cool air waft up around them. Down, the old man stated. They began to rise, drifting toward the ceiling of the upper gallery. Taz felt the hair stand up on, the, on his head. I said down, the old man shouted furiously, waving his staff menacingly at the hole below him. There was a slurping sound, and both of them were sucked into the hole so rapidly that Fizzman's hat flew off. It's just like the hat he lost in the dragon, Red Dragon's lair, Taz thought. It was bent and shapeless, and apparently possessed a mind of its own. Fizzman had a wild grab for it, but missed. The hat, however, floated down after them about 50 feet above. Um... 
then they're, they're just they're going down to where the others are. Uh, at this point, though, Lorana has uh, woken up. Quote, Lorana opened her eyes. She was lying on a cold stone bench staring at a black glistening ceiling. She had no idea where she was. Then memory returned. Silvara. S- sitting up swiftly, she flashed a glance around the room. Flint was groaning and rubbing his neck. Theris blinked and looked around, puzzled. Gilthanus, already on his feet, stood at the end of Huma's tomb, gazing down at something by the door. As Lorana walked over to him, he turned around. Putting his finger to his lips, he nodded in the direction of the doorway. Silvara sat there, her head in her arms, sobbing bitterly. Lorana hesitated, the angry words on her lips dying. This certainly what she had, this certainly wasn't what she had expected. What had she expected? She asked herself, never to wake again, most likely. There had been there had to be an explanation. She started forward. Um Then uh Lara, Silvara startled because she asked Lorana how she had she's not under her spell anymore, and then they hear a voice behind her. It was my doing, announced a deep voice. Lorana and the rest turned around to see a white-bearded old man in mouse-colored robes rise up, sawing me out of the hole in the floor. Fizban whispered Lorna in disbelief. There was a clunk and a thud. Flint toppled over in a dead faint. No one even looked at him. They simply stared at the old mage in awe. Then, with a shrill shriek, Savara flung herself flat on the cold stone floor, shivering and whimpering softly. Uh, Tassahoff comes trailing up after him. Quote, look who I found, the calendar said proudly. Fizban. And I flew, Lorana. I jumped in the hole and just flew up straight into the air. And there's a painting up there with gold dragons. And then Fizban sat up and yelled at me. And I must admit, I felt really queer there for a while. My voice was gone. And what happened to Flint? <laughs> um, then uh, Fizban reaches down and grabs Savar and shakes her shoulder. Quote, Silvara, what have you done? Fizban asked sternly. Lorana thought then that perhaps she had made a mistake. This must be some other, other old man dressed in the old magician's clothes. This stern-faced, powerful man was certainly not the befuddled old maid she remembered. But no, she'd recognize that face anywhere, to say nothing of the hat. Watching the two of them, Savara and Fizban before her, Lorana felt great and awesome power like silent thunder surging between the two. She had a terrible longing to run out of this place and keep running until she dropped with exhaustion. But she couldn't move. She could only stare. What have you done, Silvara? Fizban demanded. You have broken your oath. No, the girl moaned, writhing on the ground of the floor, old mage's feet. No, I haven't. Not yet. You have walked the world in another body, meddling in the affairs of men. That alone would be sufficient, but you brought them here. So... Now we have it. Um, both Fizban and Savar are definitely more than they seem. Um, they start just having a discussion, basically. No, 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 them, none of them look. Then he turns back into Fizban. And he starts talking to him and saying hi and stuff. Um, and then he starts to say his name. He forgets it. Um, Tasselhoff supplies a name for him, Fizban, and he says Fizban and nods and smiles. Quote, Lorana thought, Lorana thought she saw the old magician cast a warning glance at Silvara. The girl lowered her head as acknowledged some silent secret signal passed between them. Um, then Fizban says he has a long journey ahead of him and he's going to leave. Um, then Silvara asks him, quote, must I tell them? Silvara asked softly, asked softly. She was still on her knees, and as she spoke, her eyes went to Gilthanus. Fizban followed her gaze. Seeing the elf lord's stricken face, his own face softened. Then he shook his head sadly. Silvara raised her hands to him in a pleading gesture. Fizban walked over to her. Taking her hands, he raised her to her feet. She threw her arms around him, and he held her close. No, Silvara, he said, his voice kind and gentle. You don't have to tell them. The choice is yours that was your sister's. You can make them forget that, you, that they were ever here. Um... Then Fizban says he's going to leave, and then he's going to take Tassoff with him. 
Um, Tassoff doesn't want to go because he's worried about Flint. Fizban says he's going to be okay. And as we know by now, Fizban knows that he's going to be okay for some reason. Um, um, and then she says she's going to tell them whatever she's going to tell them. And then she asks, quote, Will I be punished, she asked, just as the old man stepped into the shadows. Fizban stopped. Shaking his head, he looked back over his shoulder. Someone would say you were being punished right now, Savara, he said softly. What you do, you do out of love. As the choice was up to you, so is your punishment. The old man stepped into the darkness. Tesselhoff ran after him, his pouch bouncing behind him. Goodbye, Lorana. Goodbye, Theros. Take care of Flint. In the silence that followed, Lorana could hear the old man's voice. What was that name again? Fizzbutt? Furball? Fizzban, said Tess shrilly. Fizzban. Fizzban, muttered the old man. And then, of course, now the payoff with Silvara. Quote, all eyes turned to Silvara. She was calm now, at peace with herself. Although her face was filled with sorrow, it was not the tormented, bitter sorrow they had seen earlier. This was the sorrow of loss, the quiet, accepting sorrow of one who has nothing to regret. Silvara walked towards Gilthanus. She took hold of his hands and looked up into his face with so much love that Gilthanus felt blessed, even as he knew, even as he knew she was going to tell him goodbye. Um, she tells him she loves him. Um, Flint wakes up at this point. Demands to know where Tasselhoff is. They say he went with Fizban. He said Fizban's dead. And, you know, there's a whole big thing where, of course, Flint is says that, you know, Tasselhoff can't go off by himself. I'm not there to protect him. It's a very sweet, you know, thing. I like that part. Um, uh, the one funny thing is that he said, Lorna tells him he fainted. And he said, I did no such thing. Quote, I never faint this state of the dwarf indignantly. It must have been a recurrence of that deadly disease I caught on board that boat. Flint dropped his pack and slumped down beside Beside it, idiot Kinder running off with a dead old man. There's Flint not able to. He th- he he was still convinced he had a disease as opposed to just being seasick. Um. Then though, Silvara um tells Gilthanus to take a torch off the wall. Quote. Hold the torch there, she instructed, guiding his hand so that the light blazed right before. Now, look at my shadow on the wall behind me, she said in trembling tones. The tomb was silent. Only the sputtering of the flaming torch made any sound. Silvara's shadow sprang into life on the cold stone wall behind her. The companions stared at it, and for an instant, none of them could say a word. The shadow Silvara cast upon the wall was not the shadow of a young elf maid. It was the shadow of a dragon. Um, Silvara's a dragon. She always was. So... That's how she's so powerful. That's how she, you know, could do all those magic things. That's how she knew where this place was. She is the sister to the silver dragon that fell in love with Huma. Because Huma, the dragon he rode, was a woman first. And he met her, and then he fell in love with her, and then she revealed what they were. But he didn't spurn her. He, They fought together as a team, and they banned You know, it was a big thing, big doomed tragic romance because she's the one who took his body from the place and buried it someplace secret you know um she's obviously dead by this point i think but um Gilthanus doesn't have that reaction he is horrified he basically pushes her away and she accepts it. it's very sad um and then Lauren asks about the oath and the punishment Quote, I cannot tell you, Silvar spoke in a low, passionate voice. What I've done is bad enough, but I had to do something. I could no longer live in this world and see the suffering of innocent people. I thought perhaps I could help, so I took elven form and I did what I could. I worked long trying to get the elves to join together. I kept them from war, but matters were going worse. Then you came, and I saw that we were in great peril, greater than any of us had ever imagined. For you brought with you, her voice faltered. The dragon orb, Lorana said suddenly, yes. Silvar's fists clenched in misery. 
I know then I had to make a decision. You had the orb, but you also had the lance. The lance and the orb coming to me, both together. It was a sign, I thought, but I didn't know what to do. I decided to bring the orb here and keep it safe forever. Then as we traveled, I realized the knights were never allowed to remain here. There would be trouble. So when I saw my chance, I sent it away. Her shoulders sagged. That apparently was the wrong decision. But how was I to know? Um, you know, she... Apparently even dragons can make mistakes. Um... And then she, she said. And then Lauren asked him why they brought them, why she brought them here. Um, and then she again uh, talks to herself a little bit. "Quote: Can I tell them? Do I have the strength?" Savara whispered to an unseen spirit. She sat there quietly for a long time, her face expressionless, her hands twisting in her lap. Her eyes closed, her head bowed, her lips moved. She covered her face with her hands and sat quite still. Then, shuddering, she made her decision. Rising to her feet, Silvera walked over to Lara's pack. Kneeling down, she slowly and carefully unwrapped the broken shaft of wood the companions had carried such a long and weary distance. Savara stood, her face one more, once more filled with peace, but now there was also pride and strength. For the first time, Lorana began to believe this girl was something as powerful and magnificent as a dragon. Walking proudly, her silver hair glistening in the torchlight, Silvera walked over to stand before Theris Ironfeld. To Theris of the Silver Arm, she said, I gave the power to forge the dragon lance. Um, we will find out why these dragons had to take this oath not to interfere. It's uh, their hands are being tied. Essentially, um, it's big, big shit, you know. Um, and she couldn't, and Silvara just couldn't take it anymore. I should say that silver dragons are the ones most <laughs> invested in the world of men. Like they, uh, and conversely, the. Uh, this, the blue dragons on the evil side are the most interested in the affairs of men and, and the other, other races. Um, you know, uh, the silver dragons fall in love with humans or elves, and the blue dragons will fall in love sometimes with humans, but never, not with elves because they're evil creatures. You know, maybe a dark elf. I could see a dark elf being, you know, a, a dragon, a blue dragon rider. Um, so that's, you know, a big thing happening there. Um, find out Silvara actually who she is. And then we actually have someone given the power to forge the Dragonlance. And that's, you know, things start to move very quickly now. But then we switch back to um, the other companions and we have a nice opening. One of my favorite openings um, from any of the books, quote, Shadows crept across the dusty tables of the Pig and Whistle Tavern. The sea breeze off the Bay of Balafor made a shrill whistling sound as it blew through the ill-fitting front windows, that distinctive whistle given the in, in, the, in the last part of its name. Any guesses to how the tavern got the part ended on the site of the innkeeper? A jovial, kind-hearted man, William Sweetwater, had been cursed at birth, so town legend went, when a wandering pig overturned the baby's cradle, so frightening young William that the mark of, its, of the pig was forever impended on his face. He has a pig's face. Um... He's an extremely likable character. He, uh, the dragon armies, it goes on to say the dragon armies are in town now. You know, nobody wants to come in to, but the draconians and gobs will come in and drink there. But he started watering his wine and charging exorbitant prices. They started staying out. He couldn't bar them. So he just started making his place. True capitalist and true capitalist fashion. He started to make his place unappealing. So people he didn't like wouldn't come in. Um, there's a description of Port Balafour, which I liked. Quote, the people of Port Balfour, 
mostly humans felt extremely sorry for themselves. They had no knowledge of what was going on in the outside world, of course, or they would have counted their blessings. No dragons came to burn their town. The draconians generally left the city as citizens alone. The dragon high lords were not particularly interested in the eastern part of the Ancelon continent. The land was sparsely populated. A few poor, scattered communities of humans in Kendermore, the homeland of the Kenders. I would love for us to go into Kendermore. It is one of the most, as you can imagine, one of the most haphazard, you know, streets that go nowhere houses built on top of other houses they get distracted what they're doing there are no real true kinder architects they'll enlist dwarves to sometimes come and do some pro bono work for them or sometimes humans sometimes live in kinders kinder war because they find them endlessly amusing and fascinating dwarves of course cannot stand kinder while at the same time feeling some kind of paternal you know well, not all. Flint is a rare case. He loves Tasselhoff so much. Mostly dwarves have nothing to do with kinder. They craft nothing. They do no actual work, all that stuff. Imagine a hippie and a you know blue-collar guy. That, that would be An the, extremely curious hippie. Yeah, that would be the who steals all your cool shit, with, but you know doesn't do it out of malice. Just, hey, man, picks something up and sticks it in his pocket. Um, that's the situation between dwarves and kinder. Uh, Flint and Tasselhoff's uh, relationship is to say is unique to say the least. Um, uh, but we continue going. Quote: A flight of dragons could have leveled the countryside, but the dragon high lords were co- concentrating their strength in the north and the west. As long as the ports remained open, the high lords had no need to devastate the lands of Balfour and Goodland. That's another place, Goodland. Um, I mean, and that gets into why there's nobody in there. But then um, a couple people walk in. Quote, he was talking to William, was talking to a few of these friends, sailors mostly with brown weathered skin and no teeth, on the evening that the strangers entered his tavern. William glared at them suspiciously, suspiciously, for, suspiciously for a moment, as did his friends. But seeing road-weary travelers and not the Highland soldiers, he greeted them cordially and shoved them to a table. Showed them to a table in the corner. The strangers ordered ale all around, except for a red-robed man who ordered nothing but hot water. Then, after a subdued discussion centering around a worn leather purse and a number of coins therein, they asked William to bring them bread and cheese. They're not from these parts, William said to his friends in a low voice as he drew the ale from a special keg he kept beneath the bar, not the keg for draconians. And poor as a sailor after a week, and poor as a sailor after a week ashore, if, if I make my guess. Um, his friends, you know, have some observations. One of them says uh, says they're refugees, um, but one of them says, quote, odd mixture, though, added the other sailor. Yon red-bearded fellow is a half-elf if I ever saw one, and the big one's got weapons enough to take on the High Lord's whole army. I'll wager he stuck a few of them with that sword, too, William grunted. They're on the run from something, I'll bet. Look at... Look at the way that bearded fellow keeps his eyes on the door. Well, we can't keep the help. We can't help them fight the high lord, but I'll, I'll see they don't want for anything. He went to serve them. Um, he tries to give them food, but uh, they refuse it. Quote, one of the women smiled at him. She was the most beautiful woman William had ever seen. Her silver gold hair gleamed from beneath her fur hood. We know who this is already, of course. Her blue eyes were like the ocean on a calm day. When she smiled at him, William felt the warmth of fine brandy run through his body. But a stern-faced, dark-haired man next to her shoved the coins back to the innkeeper. We'll not accept charity, the tall fur-cloaked man said. We won't? Asked the big man wistfully, staring at the smoked meat with longing eyes. Riverwind, the woman remonstrated, putting a gentle hand on his arm. The half-elf, too, seemed about to interpose... When the red rope man who had ordered the hot water reached out and picked up a coin from the table. We really get to see a lot of a good part racing here. I, I, one of my favorite parts with this character. 
quote, balance of the coin on the back of his bony, metallic-colored hand, the man suddenly and effortlessly sent it dancing along his knuckles. I would have thought that they would have remarked on the fact that one guy had gold skin, but you know. William's eyes opened wide. His two friends at the bar came closer to see better. The coin flicked in and out of the red road man's fingers, spinning and jumping. It vanished high in the air, only to reappear above the mage's head in the form of six coins spinning around his hood. With a gesture, he sent them to spin around William's head. The sailors watched in open-mouthed wonder. Take one for your trouble, said the mage in a whisper. Hesitantly, William tried to grab the coins that whirled past his eyes, but his hand went right through them. Suddenly, all six coins disappeared. Only one remained now, resting in the palm of the red robe mage. I'll give you this in payment, the mage said with a, mage said with a sly smile. But be careful, it may burn a hole in your pocket. William accepted the coin eagerly. Holding it between the two fingers, he gazed at it suspiciously. Then the coin burst into flame. With a startled yelp, William dropped it to the floor, stomping on it with his foot. His two friends burst out laughing. Picking up the coin, William discovered to be perfectly cold and undamaged. That's worth the meat, the innkeeper said, grinning. And a night's lodgings added his friend, the sailor slapping down a handful of coins. I believe, said Raceland softly, glancing around at the others, we have solved our problems. They're broke. I like the fact that even in a world of dragons and magic and stuff, money is still important enough that these heroes have to figure out how to, to a way to make money. Um, and they, and they do quote, thus was born the red wizard and his wonderful illusions, a traveling road show that's still talked of today as far as South Port Balfour and as far North as the ruins. Um, this is all Raceland's doing. I mean, he's, before he ever came, um, he started studying magic. He is tremendous at sleight of hand. Like he can, because his hands are, you know, to be a good magician, you have to have good hands. So his hands were naturally adept at it. So of course he was naturally adept at sleight of hand and ma- and you know just magic. They would you know call it, but it's just sleight of hand. Um, quote. In his youth, Raceland often uses considerable talents at sleight of hand to earn bread for himself and his, and, and his brother. Although this was frowned on by his master, who threatened to expel the young mage from his school, Raceland had become quite successful. Now his growing powers of magic gave him a range not possible for. He literally kept his audience spellbound with tricks and phantasm. At Raceland, phantasms. At Raceland's command, white-winged ships sailed up and down the bar at the, at the pig and whistle. Birds flew out of soup terrains, while dragons peered through the windows, breathing fire upon the startled guests. In the grand finale, the mage, resplendent in red rome sewn by Tika appeared to be totally consumed in raging flames only to walk in through the front door moments later to tumultuous applause and calmly drink a glass of white wine to the health of his guests um, so they start this act to, and they start making money people start coming in um, you know uh, I think Draconian them start coming in too and goblins but they're oddly uninterested in this kind of stuff I would that kind of struck me as well. Wait a second. This guy's obviously a mage. You don't you don't think the local draconians would sense that and report back to the dragon high lords? But they don't. Um, but the he was the only part of the act. So then Tika gets in on the act. Quote: Tika offered to dance and give him. Re- Give him time to rest between acts because it really wears him out to do this. Raceland was dubious, but Tika sewed a costume for herself that was so alluring. Caraman was at first totally opposed to the scheme. But Tika only laughed at him. Her dancing was success to increase the money they collected dramatically. Raceland added her immediately to the act. Remember, she's really beautiful and quite curvy woman. Finding the crowds enjoying this diversion, the mage thought of others. Caraman, blushing furiously, was persuaded to perform feats of strength, the highlight coming when he lifted stout William over his head with one hand. Tannis amazed the crowd with his elven ability to see in the dark, quote unquote. Uh, but Raceland was startled one day when Goldmoon came to him as he was counting the money from the previous night's performance. She wants to sing. Um, he had 
Rachel at first says no, says it's going to get us into trouble and all this stuff. Uh, Riverwind gets mad at him, um, tries to pull her away, but she insists. So one night uh, after his performance, she does. Quote, Goldmoon appeared before them dressed in a gown of pale blue. Her silver gold hair flowed on her, over her shoulders like water shimmering in the moonlight. The crowd hushed instantly. Saying nothing, she sat down in a chair on the raised platform William had hastily constructed. So beautiful was, was she that not a murmur escaped the crowd, all waited expectantly. Riverwind sat upon the floor at her feet. Putting a hand-carved flute to his lips, he began to play, and after a few moments, Goldmoon's vo- voice blended with the flute. Her song was simple, the melody sweet and harmonious yet haunting. But it was the words that caught Tannis' attention, causing him to exchange word- worried glances with Caraman. Raceland, sitting next to him, grasped hold of Tannis. Um, she is singing the songs of the old gods, and that's freaking Tannis and Raceland out. Um, Raceland fears another riot, um, but Tannis says no. Well, look at the look at what's going on with the audience. Quote: Women leaned their heads onto their husbands' shoulders. Children were quiet and attentive. The tra- draconian seemed spellbound, as wild animals sometimes be held by music. Only goblins shuffled their flapping feet, seemingly bored, but so in awe of the draconians that they dared not protest. Dra- Goldmoon's song was of the ancient gods. She told how the gods had sent the cataclysm to punish the king priest of Istar and the people of Kryn for their pride. She sang of the terrors of that night and those that followed. She reminded them of, of how the people, believing themselves abandoned, had prayed to false gods. Then she gave them a message of hope. Sorry. The gods had abandoned them. The, the true gods were here, waiting only for someone to listen to them. Um, and then uh, Goldmoon goes out and... Um, after everybody's dispersed, there's a little girl staring at Goldman, and then she goes and she tells her to come back. And she's going to teach her about the old gods. And quote, and thus slowly the word of the ancient gods began to spread. By the time they left Port Balafor, the dark-skinned woman, a soft-voiced young man, and several other people wore the gold-blue medallion of Michikol, goddess, goddess of healing. Secretly, they went forth, bringing hope to the dark and troubled land. I always kind of like that. Um, they um, are going to, after this, they're going to travel to Flotsam. Flotsam is a awful city on the Blood Sea of Istar. The Blood Sea of Istar is where the one of the giant meteors struck Ancelon and directly in the, in the center of the city of Istar. Istar was, remember when he said the king priest, he's the one who brought the cataclysm down on all, on all of them. But it turns out he, he wasn't working alone. In Talatus, there was this... Um, Another huge empire where they had become evil, and they actually got it worse because um, a series of small comets and meteors hit Ancelon. Tore up a lot of shit, you know, set civilization back quite a bit, but one giant uh, meteor struck Talatus right in its center where that empire was, and the continent stayed together. Mostly, but then there's a giant sea of lava in the center of the of the continent now. Talatus is a very, uh, again, well, there are a series of books written in Talatus. We will get into those, but it's really the only thing. There are so there's such fertile ground for stories there, um, and you know there's so much cool stuff. But anyway, um, they uh, the companions leave uh, Port Balafour. Uh, before Yuletide and uh, William is is taking them um, one of the funny things is uh, Caraman got a bearskin suit 
and he starts wearing it and, you know, part of the act driving the wagon. Um, then a draconian commander comes up to him and then, uh, they thought they were, you know, going to be in trouble, but it turns out the draconians want to see the show. Um, and you know, the draconian asked him, my friend told me about this. Are you going to play for us? And Tan said, yes. And he has no intention of going there. Um, so I think they're going to flotsam now. Uh, quote, finally, they reached the city gates. Climbing down from their mounts, they bid farewell to their friend. We even gave them each a hug, starting with Tika and ending with Tika. <laughs> he was going to hug Raceland, but the mage's golden eyes widened so alarmingly when William approached it, the innkeeper backed away precipitously. <laughs> I was like that. Um, uh, I like this part at the end. Um, this was a nice, pretty part. I wish they could extend it. It's just one chapter. I wish they could extend it more. Um, Karim and, uh, and Tannis are sitting. Um, it was Raceland sitting on the wagon with uh, with Karim, but he goes in because it's too cold. And Tannis comes up and sit, by, sit beside Karim, and they have a nice discussion. Quote, you know, Tannis, he said solemnly above the jingling of the bells, Tika had tied to the horse's manes. I'm more thankful than I can tell you, tell that none of our friends saw this. Can you hear what Flint would say? That grumbling old dwarf would never let me live this down. And you can, you can imagine, sir, the big man shook his head, the thought being being beyond words. Yes, Tannis sighed, I can imagine, Sturm. Dear friend, I never realized how much I depended on you, your courage, your noble spirit. Are you alive, my friend? Did you reach San Chris safely? Are you now the knight and body that you've always been in spirit? Will we meet again, or have we parted never to meet again in this life as Raceland predicted? Awful lot of foreshadowing there, don't you think? The group rode on. The grade drew, the day grew darker, the storm wilder. Riverwind dropped back to ride beside Gold Moon. Tika tied her horse behind the wagon and crawled up to sit near Caraman. Inside the wagon, Raceland slept. Tennis rode alone, his head bowed, his his thoughts far away. That's how we end that part. Um, I always liked that. I thought it was some of the best writing they did. Um, it seems in a lot of fantasy, there's you know, there's a time where the characters will perform in some kind of act, or you know, you know, I've noticed that's a that can be a theme in fantasy. Um, doesn't happen in Lord of the Rings um, because that would be too. I don't know, warm. Lord of the Rings is not warm. Other than being in Hobbiton, you know, with how the Hobbits are portrayed. And, you know, and that's more an extension of seeing the movie and how they were portrayed in that. Because it's the best part of the entire, that that mind-bogglingly long trilogy, you know, is the, is the beginning of the Fellowship where you're in Hobbiton. As long as the, that trilogy is, it's still not as long as the Zack Snyder. No, four hours. this League. Um, the next chapter we get into... Um, is we go right into the trial of Sturm Brightblade. Um, I always like this picture. It's Sturm's sword with black roses on it. Quote, And finally, said Derek in a low and measured voice, I accused Sturm Brightblade of cowardice in the face of the enemy. A low murmur ran through the assemblage of knights gathered in the castle of Lord Gunther. Three knights seated at the massive black oak table in front of the assembly, leaned their heads together and conferred in low tones. This is a uh, the three the heads of the three orders are coming together to discuss Sturm's fate. Derek Crownguard has, is, as he said, is trying to deny him entry into the Knights. Um, we're introduced to uh, one, uh, a, a character that reminds me very much of Sir Barristan, um, an old knight, still, still tough, still at the height of his powers pretty much, but getting, getting up there. His name's Gunther Uthwiston, who is, 
you know, Uth and and stuff like that are Salamnic names. I don't know. I, th- I don't know where they would have gotten their culture from. They seem to be kind of um, Nordic in nature, you know, um, maybe Dutch. You know, it's just it's it's a very uh, like van for for Dutch people. That's the way Uth uh, and other surnames start. You know, for Salamnic knights, um, especially the older families. Like Kitty Ara's father was a Slamnik Knight. His name was his her last name was Uthmatar. Um, I think it's probably of or something like That's that. That's what I figured. Yeah. Um, I like Sir Gunther a lot. He's an honorable man. He's one of the few honorable knights left in a as Sturm will observe a very political and um, backstabbing order now after the cataclysm. That's what happened has happened to the Knights of Slamnia. Um. They're all sitting in in a table in front of Sturm. Sturm sits by himself, of course. Quote, only one person in the hall hall was silent. Sturm Brightblade sat unmoving throughout all of Derek Crownguard's damning damning accusations. He had heard charges of insubordination, failure to obey orders, masquerading as a knight, and not a word or murmur had escaped him. His face was carefully expressionless. His hands were clasped on the top of the table. Lord Gunther's eyes were unsturmed now, as they had been throughout the trials. He began to wonder if the man was even still alive, so fixed and white was his face, so rigid his posture. Gunther had seen Sturm flinch only once. At the charge of cowardice, a shudder convulsed the man's body. Look on his face. Well, Gunther recalled seeing that same look once previously on a man who's been run through by a spear. But Sturm quickly regained his composure. Sturm is still thinking about his uh, failure and cowardice uh, in Sylvanesti. Remember, he had the dream. I like the fact they put that in there. It still haunts him, you know, because he's never been a coward in uh, in real life. Um, the the nature of this trial is very short. It's one chapter, but it's it speaks volumes. The upper echelons of the knights are the political people, um, the ones who are willing to backstab each other and all that shit. They don't like Sturm, with the exception of Sir Gunther. Sir Gunther knew Sturm's dad. They were battle. They were watched each other's back in battle more than once. Um, so he knows the Bright Blades to be a good family, and he believes in Sturm. Uh, but all these charges are leveled by a knight of the Rose. Derek Crownguard is the highest. He's a very powerful knight, young knight. He's coming into his home in the knighthood. And as I said, he's he's from the most powerful group. He's his bloodline can be traced back to the first knights. He's he's skilled in battle. He's he's no slouch. Um, he's just a monumental prick, um, and he's very. He's very political, and he's willing to do whatever to advance himself. Basically, he's a Donald Trump knight. So um, we get a uh, a observation about Derek from uh, Lord Gunther. Quote, Gunther watched Derek Crownguard as the knights returned to their places. Derek was the only rival with the money and backing capable of claiming the rank of Grandmaster. There is no Grandmaster at this point. Um, hoping to earn additional votes, Derek had eagerly volunteered to untake, undertake the perilous quest in search of the legendary dragon orbs. Gunther was given little choice but to agree. If he had refused, he would appear frightened of Derek's growing power. Derek was undeniably most qualified if one strictly followed the measure. But Gunther, who had known Derek a long time, would have prevented this going if he could have, not because he feared the knight, but because he truly did not trust him. The man was vainglorious and power-hungry, and when he came down to it, Derek's first loyalty is late to Derek. Um... He's also going to, if he can, t- 
take Sturm down and Gunther, Lord Gunther, who is backing Sturm, his name is on the line. If Sturm is dismissed from the knighthood and all that stuff, Lord Gunther's power, he will, he might very well be dismissed as well. And he's, he's one of the backbones of slamming Knights, but Derek crown guard wants all the power. Um, they asked Sturm, um, to speak for himself. Um, he really, he doesn't want to speak for himself. Like he, he doesn't really know what to say. I mean, he loves the Knights so much that he's in a, he's put in a real quandary here. He, he, he understands that if he says what he thinks about what is actually going on, then it could hurt the knighthood. So that's where we're at. Um, but Gunther says, well, you charge him with cowardice in the face of the enemy, but the elves aren't our enemies. That's what, cause he, this is about the elves attacking him and Stern, remember Stern wouldn't fight him. He threatened Eric, which was probably not a good idea. He probably could have done that more diplomatically. Like, Hey man, these people are our friends. We got to get out of here. You know, this is, this violates both the oath and the measure, which is the thing that guides the, the knighthood. Um, and they don't attack friends. So, um, so then Lord Gunther, um, says so. And, Derek has to speak in his defense. Quote, perhaps enemy is too strong a word, my lord. Derek recovered smoothly. If I am at fault, it is simply that I am being forced to go by what is written in the measure. At the time I speak of, the elves, though not our enemies in point of fact, were doing everything in their power to prevent us from bringing the dragon orb to Sandcrest. Since this was my mission and the elves opposed it, I therefore am forced to define those enemies according to the measure. Um, and that was, even Gunther said that, it was slick. That was a, you know, a, a slick interpretation to benefit himself. Um, many of the older knights are being swayed. They nod in approval. Uh, and Sturm speaks up. Quote, it also says in the measure, Sturm said slowly, that we are not to take life needlessly, that we only fight only in defense, either our own or defense, or in the defense of others. The elves did not threaten our lives. At no time were, were we actually in physical danger. They were shooting arrows at you, man. Lord Alfred struck the table with his gloved hand. This is one of the older knights that's on Derek's side. True, my Lord Sturm replied, but all, all know the elves are expert marksmen. If they had wanted to kill us, they would not have been hitting trees. What do you believe would have happened if you had attacked the elves, Gunther asked que Gunther question. The results would have been tragic in, tragic in my view, my lord, Sturm said, his voice soft and low. For the first time in generations, elves and humans would be killing each other. I think the dragon eye lords would have laughed. Several of the young knights applauded. Remember, the young knights are on, um, you know, they're on Sturm's side because they, of course, they're going to be idealists. The young, the young are usually idealists. And especially in order like this, they came to the knighthood probably most knights come to knighthood first wanting to live up to the spirit and the what the knights are few of them retain that in their elder years in a in an order like this where things have gone so haywire what becomes a political and uh power hungry and even an economical order to control wealth in salamnia and increase their holdings, you know, all this stuff. The Knights of Slamnia are in order. There is no King of Slamnia. The Knights of Slamnia are just the Knights. They, they were an order dedicated to helping all, you know, um, they've obviously fallen off of that. Uh, uh, Sturm refuses to answer a question. Um, he says that, uh, Derek has misrepresented him. And he doesn't want to say the reason. Um, 
Gunther tells him it's a serious charge. You should answer it. Quote, Sturm's face flushed. Clasping and unclasping his hands, he raised his eyes and looked directly at the three knights who sat in judgment on him. His case was lost. He knew that. He would never be a knight, never attain what had been dear to him than life itself. To have lost it through fault of his own would have been bitter enough, but to lose it like this was a festering wound. And so he spoke the words that he knew would make Derek his bitter enemy for the rest of his days. I believe Derek Crownguard misrepresents me in an effort to further his own ambition, my lord. Tumult broke out. Derek was on his feet. His friends restrained him forcibly or would have attacked Sturm in the council hall. Gunther banged the sword hilt for order, and eventually the, the assembly quieted down, but not before Derek could challenge Sturm to test his honor in the field. Uh, Gunther t- basically tells him to shut up and sit down. Um, and uh, they break him up. They get Derek calmed down, basically. Um, Gunther asked me if he has anything to say, anything else to say in his defense. He says no. I, this this really fleshes out Sturm's character. You really grow to like him. He was he was hard to like at first because he was just this stiff, you know, kind of melancholy character. He's still that, but they fleshed him out to be what he is, which is a living embodiment of what the Slamnik Knights should be. You know, um. And then they tell him to withdraw what they consider the matter. They're going to pass judgment. Quote, Sturm sat on the bench at the far end of the chamber. He appeared composed and calm, but it was all an act. He was determined not to let these knights see the tumult in his soul. It was hopeless, he knew. Gunther's grieved expression told him that much. But what would judgment be? Exile? Being stripped of lands and wealth? Sturm smiled bitterly. He had nothing they could take from him. He had lived outside of Salamnia so long, exile would be meaningless. Death? He, was almost, he would almost welcome that. Anything would be better than this dull... Then this hopeless existence, this dull, throbbing pain. Um, of course, as we said before, the knights are split into different factions. The older knights siding with Derek because he's a, a because they he's a knight of the rose, and b because they fear the power he wields. It's basically like I hate to keep doing this, but it's basically like the uh, the Senate Republicans and House siding with Trump, even though they know he's an he's an awful character, you know. Um, Democrats do that too to a certain point. I'm not trying to bring politics into this, but I'm saying uh, they all do that. Well, I know they all do that, but it's more naked and 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 profane in my. Well, we've never had a cartoonishly evil guy like Trump as president. Yeah, let's not let's not say he's evil. Let's not let's not assign evil to incompetence. All right, Sam Harris. <laughs> he's right. Yeah, he is right. And the reason he's, sm- he's a smart fucking guy. He is. He's brilliant, and he despises Donald Trump. Um, he said he would have. He said he would have voted for Hillary. Ben Shapiro a thousand times that. over. Ben Shapiro is the first one to say that, though. What that don't assign evil. Yeah, we're, we're incompetent. Yeah, or ben Shapiro doesn't like me either. No. Um, quote: The young knight spoke openly of Sturm's noble bearing, his acts of courage, which even Derek could not suppress. Sturm was right in not fighting the elves. The knights of Salamnia needed all the friends they could get these days. Why attack needlessly and so forth? The older knights had only one answer: the measure. Derek had given Sturm an order. He had refused to obey. Obey. The measure said this was inexcusable. Our arguments raged most of the afternoon. It's kind of a good thing that it took so long. Um, They bring him in, um, and he sees, uh, Sturm sees something that he knows he's going to know the answer before, um, before they even speak. Quote, the sword of his father, a sword that legend said was passed down from Bertha Brightblade himself, a sword that would break only if its master break lay on the table. Sturm's eyes went to the sword. His head dropped to hide the burning tears in his eyes. Wreathed around the blade was the ancient, ancient symbol of guilt, black roses. Um, 
So it's not good. Um, Sir Gunther is the one who speaks now. Quote, Stern Breitbite, we have found you guilty. We are prepared to render judgment. Are you prepared to receive it? Yes, my lord, Sturm said tightly. Gunther tugged his mustaches, a sign that the men who had served with him, with him recognized. Lord Gunther always tugged his mustaches just before rotting into battle. Sturm Breitbite, it is our judgment that you henceforth cease wearing any of the trappings or accoutrements of a knight of Salamnia. Yes, my lord, Sturm said softly, swallowing. And henceforth you will not draw pay from the coffers of the knights, nor obtain any property or gift from them. The knights in the hall shifted restlessly. This was ridiculous. No one had drawn pay in the service of the order since the cataclysm. Something was up. They smelled thunder before the storm. Finally, Lord Gunther paused. He leaned forward, his hands toying with the black roses that graced the antique sword. His shrewd eye swept the assembly, gathering up his audience, allowing the tension to build. By the time he spoke, even the fire behind him had ceased to crackle. Stern Brightblade, assembled knights. Never before has such a case as this come before the council, and that perhaps is not as odd as that may seem, for these are dark and unusual days. We have a young squire, and now I remind you that Brightblade is, is young by all standards of the order, a young squire noted for his skill and valor in battle, and that's true. Sturm, is a, he is tough. He is a badass. Even his accuser admits that. A young squire charged with disobeying orders and cowardice in the face of the enemy. The young squire does not deny this charge, but states he is being misrep- misrepresented. Now, by the measure, we are bound to accept the word of a tried and tested knight such as Derek Crownguard or the word of a man who has not yet won his shield. But the measure all states that this man shall be able to call witnesses in his own behalf. Due to the un- unusual circumstances occasioned by these dark times, Stern Brightblade is not able to call witnesses, nor for that matter was Derek Crownguard able to produce witnesses to support his own cause. Therefore, we have agreed on the following slightly irregular procedure. It is the judgment of this council, Lord Gunther continued, that the young man, Sturmbrightbade, be accepted in the lowest order of the knights of the of the, the order of the crown on my honor. There was a second uniform gasp of astonishment. He is really sticking his neck out here. And that, furthermore, he be placed as third in command of the army that is due to set sail shortly for Palanthus. As prescribed by the measure, the high command must have a representative from each of the orders. Therefore, Derek Crownguard will be high commander representing the Order of the Rose. Lord Alfred Markinen will rep- represent the Order of the Sword, and Sturmbrightbade will act on my honor as commander for the order of the crown so he has been essentially demoted and taken you know back to the beginning but he's also been given a command which i thought was i always loved that part of the book um the younger knights burst into cheers and run out and start patting storm on the shoulder and all that stuff and you know saying you know because it is a victory i mean it is a political decision you know they upheld what Derek said, but yet at the same time, they rewarded Stern for being who he is. You know, he can't wear his father's armor anymore. His father's armor is not the Rose armor. It's the highest armor you can have, you know. So he has, he's, he is not to wear that anymore. He can still wear, wield his father's sword, of course, because that is his family's property, you know. Um, and I don't think they would get it out of him except taking it out of his cold, dead hand anyway. I mean, they'd have to kill him before they took that sword from him. And a lot of them would die in the, in the process, and they know that. Um, um, Lord Gunther takes Stern with him, wants to talk to him. Quote, when the two of them were alone in the hall, Lord Gunther smiled expansively at Sturm and shook his hand. The young knight returned the handshake warmly, if not the smile. The pain was too fresh. Then slowly and carefully, Sturm took the black roses from his sword. Laying them on the table, he slid the black the blade back in the scabbard at his side. He started to brush the roses aside, but paused, then picked up one and thrust it into his belt. Um, and, you know, Sturm knows uh, what Gunther has done here. 
Quote, I must thank you, my Lord Stern said firmly. The risk you take is very great. I hope I will prove worthy. Risk? Nonsense, my boy. Rubbing, rubbing his hands to restore the circulation, Gunther led Sturm into a small room decorated for the approaching Yule celebration. It's nice to know Kryn cel- celebrates uh, basically Christmas. Red winter roses grown Red winter roses grown indoors, kingfisher feathers, and tiny delicate golden crowns. A fire blazed blaze brightly. At Gunther's command, servants brought in two mugs of steam liquid that gave off a warm, spicy odor. Many were the times your father threw his shield in front of me and stood over me, protecting me when I was down. As you did the same for him, Sturm said. You, you owe him nothing. Pudging your honor for means that if I fail, you will suffer. You will be stripped of your rank, your title, your lands. Derek would see to that, he added gloomily. So that's what Gunther risked for him. He risked everything on his honor. So every night in that high, in, in the upper orders, had to look at Gunther, not only uh, a legend, basically, but imagine him as a Sir Barristan who could probably take on all of them at once and kill him. They had to basically tell him after he said that, that your honor is not good enough. And he would have obviously at least challenged one of them taken his gone, gotten off, slapped him in the face, something like, all right, we're going to settle this in the yard. They knew that. Plus the, he wields still considerable power, especially among the younger knights who see him as what a knight should be, you know? So that's, I always thought that was very interesting. Um, They're just sitting there talking, and Sturm is exhausted. So, quote, Sturm shut his eyes. The strain had been too much. Dropping his head on his arm, he wept, his body shaking with painful sobs. Gunther gripped his shoulder. I understand, he said, his eyes looking back to a time of Salamnia, when this young man's father had broken down and cried that same way. The night Lord Brightblade had sent his young wife and infant son on a journey into exile, a journey from which he would never see them return. Exhausted, Sturm finally fell asleep, his head lying on the table. Gunther sat with him, sipping the hot wine, lost memories of the past until he, too, drifted into slumber. Um, I love this part of the book. This has always been one of my favorite parts. Going back and reading it, of course, I wish it had been longer. I wish it would have been more. Um, it seemed very rushed. You know, we went right into the trial. There was no coming into, um, I think it was Vingard Keep, maybe or maybe Daregard. I can't remember where they're where they're at it exactly. Um, and going to the trial. Um, it did save some time because remember books like this are dealing with a time limit. You know, you can't write an 800-page book like Martin does because these books don't have that format. They were able to push that later on when they were established and make longer books, but they still, I felt, felt more comfortable writing within the confines of a 350- to 500-page book. Um, the last Dragonlance Chronicle, Dragons of Summer Flame, however, is like a 700-page book because it ties everything up. Great book. Soul Crusher, but we'll get to that one. Um, that is part four. We're gonna well, get- let's just do it right now. Okay. <laughs> no. um, then uh, after that, uh, they're getting re- ready to leave for the Battle of Palanthus, which is a pivotal event. Quote: The few days left, bef- the few days left before the army sailed to Palanthus, passed swiftly for Sturm. He had fi- he had to find armor used he couldn't afford new. He packed his father's carefully, intending to carry it since he had been forbidden to wear it. Then there were meetings to attend, battle dispositions to study, information on the enemy, enemy to assimilate. The battle for Palanthus would be a bitter one, determining control of the entire northern part of Salamnia. The leaders were agreed upon their strategy. They would fortify the city walls with the knights with the city's army. The knights themselves would occupy the High Claris Tower that stood blocking the pass to the Vingard Mountains. But that was all they agreed upon. Meetings between the three leaders were tense, the air chill. Um, we go to a part then where... Um, I, I like this part. Um, 
Quote, finally the day came for the ships to sail. The knights gathered on board. Their families stood quietly on the shore. Their faces were pale. There were few tears. The women standing as tight-lipped and stern as their men. Some wives wore swords buckled around their own waists. All knew that if the battle in the north was lost, the enemy would come across the sea. I like that image. The fact that uh, Slamnik women are as tough as their men, and they're they're all raised in the, in that knight, knightly tradition. So human women in this... Uh, in this world are not necess- are usually not warriors. Like you have the odd one like Kitty Ara. Elven women are trained, but it's more of a ceremonial thing. I would imagine that the women of Salamnia train with weapons because they know that they're in a, they are have a warlike culture and they know that they're going to fight a lot of war. So if their men fall, they're going to have to be able to pick up the weapons and keep going. I like that. Um, Gunther asks... Uh, he then asks uh, Sturm if he has if he could find witnesses to what happened between him and Derek and all that stuff. And uh, Sturm says, "Well, you know, yes, Lorana and Gilthanus and Gunther knows who they are. You know, the the children of the Speaker of the Sons." And he like kind of whistles. He's like, "Yeah, they'd be great witnesses." And then that makes Sturm think of Alana, and he's got the Star Jewel tucked in his belt, and he picks it up. Um, I always thought, and he's thinking of Alana. Um, he says, "If you know, if you can get them to, uh, you know, testify, then you will be free of, uh, you know, any stain on your honor, or whatever." And then Storm says, "Well, yeah." And then you'll be. And he says, "Don't think about that." But I'll, I always like this part. Quote: Gunther laid his heart, hand on Storm's head. This is after he's always after he's always already done this to his own sons. As he laid his hand on the heads of his own sons, Storm knelt before him reverently. Receive my blessing, Star of Bright Blade, a father's blessing I give give in the absence of your own father. Do your duty, young man, and remain your father's son. May human, Lord Human Spirit be with you. Thank you, my lord, Sturm said, rising to his feet. Farewell. Farewell, Sturm, Gunther said. Embracing the young knight swiftly, he turned and walked away. The knights boarded the ships. It was dawn, but no sun shone in the winter sky. Gray clouds hung over a lead gray sea. There were no cheers. The only sounds were the shadow commands of the captain and the responses of his crew, the creaking of the winches, and the flapping of the sails in the wind. Slowly, the white-winged ships weighed anchor and sailed north. Soon, the last sail was out of sight, but no one, still no one left the pier, not even when a sudden rain squall struck, pelting them with sleet and icy drops, drawing a fine gray curtain across the chill waters. That's a very bleak image. They don't... The Knights of Slamney are skilled warriors, and they know odds. They know these things. The odds are not in their favor. With this, they know that dragon armies have monsters. They have dragons on their side. What can they possibly do against things like this? You know, so um, pretty much all the men who went on those boats, pretty sure they're not coming home. You know, this is a death sentence to go to this, but they're doing their duty. Um, we next come to a the next chapter. Raceland is uh, in. He's in a tent, um, and he's by himself. Um, He's going to do something that uh, is pretty epic and monumental. Quote, Raceland's thin hand stretched out to touch the robe, the slender, fing- slender fingers stroking the shining sequin fabric wistfully, regretting that this period in his life was over. So he does have some sentiment. I've been happy, he murmured to himself. Strange. There have not been many times in my life I can make that claim. Certainly not when I was young, nor in these past few years after they tortured my body and cursed me, cursed me with these eyes. But then I ex- never expected happiness. How paltry it is compared to my magic still. 
Still, these last weeks, last few weeks have been weeks of peace, weeks of happiness. I don't suppose any will come again, not after what I must do. Raceland held the robe a moment longer, then shrugging, he tossed it in a corner and continued on to the back of the wagon, which he had curtained off for his own private use. Once inside, he pulled the curtains securely together. Um, sitting down at the... Sp- down a small drop-leaf table Caraman had constructed for him, Raceland carefully withdrew from the innermost pocket of his robes an ordinary-looking sack, the sack that contained the dragon orb. His skeleton, finger, his skeletal fingers trembled as he tugged on the drawstring. The bag opened. Reaching in, Raceland grasped the dragon orb and brought it forth. He held it easily in his palm, inspecting closely to see if there had been any change. No. A faint green color still swirled within. It still felt as cold to the touch as he held a hailstone. Smiling, Raceland clasped the orb tightly in one hand while he fumbled through the props beneath the table. He finally found what he thought, a crudely carved three-legged wooden stand. Lifting it up, Raceland set it on the table. It wasn't much to look at. It wasn't much to look at. Flint would have scoffed. Raceland had near, neither the love nor the skill needed to work wood. He had carved it laboriously in secret, shutting up, shut up inside the jouncing wagon during the long days on the road. No, it was not much to look at, but he didn't care it, sir. It would suit his purpose. Um, he's going to try to gain control of the dragon orb, which is remember Lorak. Lorak was extremely powerful, and he was an elf who had studied magic for centuries. He lost this battle. I mean, how we? You know, of course, we know how what the outcome is going to be, but it's definitely not going to be easy. There's a big passage here. Um, something that cannot be avoided because it's a, it's too good, and b, uh, it's so instrumental in the story. Quote. Slowly, the drifting green color was submerged in a myriad of swirling, gliding colors that made him dizzy to watch. The crystal was so cold beneath his palms that it was painful to touch. Raceland had a terrifying vision of pulling away his hands and leaving the flesh behind, frozen to the orb. Gritting his teeth, he ignored the pain and whispered the words again. His magic words, which I, again, refused to say. The colors ceased to swirl. A light glowed in the center, a light neither white nor black, all colors, yet none. Raceland swallowed, fighting the choking phlegm that rose in his throat. Out of the light came two hands. He had a desperate urge to withdraw his own, but before he could move, the two hands grasped him, his in a grip, grip both strong and firm. The orb vanished. The room vanished. Raceland saw, Raceland saw nothing around him. No light. No darkness. Nothing. Nothing but two hands holding his, his. Out of sheer terror, Raceland concentrated on those hands. Human? Elven? Old? Young? He could not tell. The fingers were long and slender, but their grip was a grip of death. Let go and he would fall into the void to drift into merciful darkness consumed him. Even as he clung to those hands with strength led him, lent him by fear, Raceland realized the hands were slowly drawing him nearer, drawing him into... Raceland came to himself suddenly, as if someone had dashed cold water in his face. No, he told the man that told the mind that he sensed controlled the hands. I will not go. Though he feared losing that saving grip, he feared even more being dragged where he did not want to go. He would not lo- let loose. I will maintain control, he told the mind to the hands savagely. Tightening his own grip, the man summoned all of his strength, all of his will, and pulled the hand toward him. The hand stopped. For a moment, the two wills vied together, locked in a life-or-death contest. Raceland felt the strength ebb from his body. His hands weakened. The palms began to sweat. He felt the hands of, his, of the orb begin to pull him again, ever so slightly. In agony... Raceland summoned every drop of blood, focused every nerve, sacrificed every muscle in his frail body to regain, regain control. Slowly, just when he thought his ha- pounding heart would burst from his chest or his brain explode in fire, Raceland felt the hands cease their tug. They still maintained their firm grip on him as he managed to his firm grip on them. But the two were no longer in contest. His hands and the hands of the dragon orb remained locked together, each conceding respect, neither, neither seeking dominance. The ecstasy of the victory, the ecstasy of the magic flowed through Raceland and burst forth, wrapping him in a warm golden light. His body relaxed. Trembling, he felt the hands hold him gently, support him, lend him strength. He then has a conversation with the dragon orb that I 
won't repeat really because it's just, I mean, um, he basically tells them what they do. So the dragons can't resist when they, when, you know, when they call because, you know, that's what it does. And then it tells him it's going to show him all this magic. And, um, he tells him of the library of, of Astinus of Palanthus, where it's Astinus we will get into is he is truly immortal. He's a scribe who literally is writing the history of at least Ancelon. I mean, he never mentions Talatus. He mentions Talatus briefly in one of the books, but it's just Ancelon he's recording. And he, it's all he ever does is write. He doesn't sleep. He doesn't, you know what I mean? He's some people think he's, he's the God Gillian, which he isn't, but I think it comes like that he might be Gillian's son with a mortal woman. I don't know. It's some kind of odd thing. Um, very interesting character. Um, also very interesting because uh, he is so unflappable. Like all this stuff is going on around him. All this, these, he, he, he wrote during the cataclysm, just kept writing as the library tumbled and shook around him. He just sat, kept there and s- continued writing about what was happening. Um, <laughs> one of my favorite parts is when Tasselhoff, is trying to talk to him and then he stops and he looks at him and even Tesloff is like taken aback by, you know, he's like, he's like, he just stopped writing because of me. Maybe I should shut up. So he does. Um, then we go to, uh, this is very, what happens next is uh, Tika and Karaman are making out basically. Um, Tika is basically begging him to just finish it so they can actually consummate, you know, um, and he can't. He's in love with her, but he knows that if he does that, then they're going to be a couple and he can't. He can't give all his attention to Raceland. And it's, it's a very odd dynamic. These the twins have with each other. Um, Carolyn feels responsible, you know. And he's his protector, so he knows that he can't do his job properly if he's in love with Tika, and he can't love Tika properly. You know what I mean? He's he's stuck there, and he's he's had sex with hundreds of women, probably. I mean, he's big, he's handsome, he's jovial. You know, he's well liked. You know, so yeah, but he can't do that to her because he actually loves her. That is a foreshadowing of something that comes in the next series, the Dragonlance Legends, and it does not go well for them. I mean, it's as I said, Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman write tragedy very well and that is a it's ultimately it's not tragic but it's tragic for quite a while and um that's great that's my favorite series of books we will finish up with these and then we'll go into those after we do something different for a while to let it breathe um but after he basically refuses her um he tells her this quote Wait a minute, he said. Let me finish. I love you, Tika, as truly as any man loves any woman in this world. I want to make love to you. If we weren't involved in this stupid war, I'd make you mine today, this minute. But I can't, because if I did, it would be a commitment to you that I would, that I would dedicate my life to keeping. You must come first in all my thoughts. You deserve no less than that. That's actually a very sweet thing. But I can't make that commitment, Tika. My first commitment is to my brother. Tika's tears flowed again, this time not for herself, but for him. I must leave you free to find someone who can. Um, and then... You know, they're interrupted. I think Tannis, uh, Tannis tells them to come quickly, and then they find Raisel on the floor. Uh, he's got blood coming out of his mouth, um, and they ask him what happened, and he just says, quote, mine, Raisel whispered, spells of the ancient, mine, mine, 
The mage's head lolled, his words died, but his face was calm, placid, relaxed. His breathing grew regular. Raceland's thin part lips parted in a smile. Um He won. He gained he gained as yeah, as we knew he would, the the uh power of the dragon land of the dragon orb. Um Then we go to a good chapter I like because it is a well, let's get into it. Quote, it took Lord Gunther several days of hard riding to reach his home in time for Yule, following the departure of the knights for Palanthus. The roads were knee-deep in mud. His house, his horse foundered more than once, and Gunther, who loved his horse nearly as well as his son's, walked whenever necessary. By the time he returned to his castle, therefore, he was exhausted, drenched, and shivering. The stablemen came out to take charge of the horse personally. Um, then one of his, uh, his manservant comes out and says, well, you've got a couple of visitors. Um... <laughs> Quote, an old man, my lord, Willis, inter- Wills interrupted, and a kinder. A kinder, Gunther repeated in some alarm. I've read so, my lord, but don't worry, the retainer added hastily. I've locked the silver in a drawer, and your lady wife has taken her jewels to the cellar. <laughs> you know, um, I love this because he's coming up the hall, and he hears him talking. And this is, again, Fizban and Tasselhoff. Quote, Gunther and Wills stood outside the door of the war room for a moment, eavesdropping on the visitor's conversation. Put that back, ordered a stern, stern voice. I won't. It's mine. Look, it was in my pouch. Bah, I saw you put it there not five minutes ago. Well, you're wrong, protested the other voice in wounded tone. It's my. See, there's my name engraved to Gunther, my beloved husband on the day of life gifts, said the, said the first voice. There was a moment's silence in the room. Wills turned pale. Then the shrill voice spoke, more subdued this time. I guess it must have fallen into my pack, Fizban. That's it. See, my pack was sitting under that table. Wasn't that lucky? It, it would have broken if it had to hit the floor. <laughs> That's endlessly amusing, his excuses. Um, then he comes in, and there's, um, of course, Fizban and, and Tasshoff standing there. Um, the servant offers to stay, but then Fizban says... Um, Quote, yes, thank you, my good man. Bring up some more ale, and don't bring any of that rot gut stuff from the servants' barrels either. The old man looked at Will sternly. Tap the barrel that's in the dark corner by the cellar stairs. You know, the one that's all cobwebby. Will stared at him open-mouthed. Well, go on. Don't stand there gaping like a landed fish. A bit dim-witted, is he? The old man asked Gunther. Um, Gunther, of course, wonders how hell he knew about that uh, barrel, of course. Um, and we have the the whole thing where he Tasselhoff to has to remind him that he's Fizban. Um, he knows all about the trial. Um, he asked about the dragon orb. Um, <laughs> the, the servant comes back in. Um, he sets the, uh, the mugs down the table, three mugs here, my Lord. And one of the mantle makes four and there better be four. When I come back, he walked out, shutting the door with a thud. I'll keep an eye on them. Ta- Taz promised solemnly. Do you have a problem with stealing mugs? <laughs> <It's Canther. laughs> um, then Gunther, uh, we uh, again, see more of his band. Um, he asked about the dragon orb. Um, quote, Gunther stood up angrily, intending to order this strange old man and this kinder from his chamber in his castle. He was going to call his guards to extract them, but instead he found himself caught by the old man's intense gaze. The Knights of Slamia have always feared magic. Though they had not taken part in the destruction of the Towers of High Sorcery, that would have been against the measure. They had not been sorry to see magic users driven from Palanthus. What do you want to know, Gunther faltered. 
Why do you want to know? Gunther faltered, feeling a cold fear seep into his blood as he felt the old man's strange power engulf him. Slowly, re- reluctantly, Gunther sat back down. Fizzman's eyes glittered. I keep my own counsel, he said softly. Let it be enough for you to know that I have come seeking the orb. It was made by magic users long ago. I know of it. I know a great deal about it. Gunther hesitated, wrestling with himself. After all, there were knights guarding the orb, and if this old man really did know something about it, what harm could there be in telling him where it was? Besides, he really didn't feel like he had any choice in the matter. Um... Fizban asked picked up his empty mug and started to drink. He peered inside it mournfully as Gunther answered. The dragon orb is with the gnomes. Fizban dropped his mug with a crash. It broke into a hundred pieces and went skittering across the wooden floor. There, what did I tell you, Taz had softly eyeing the shattered mug. That apparently wasn't what Fizban wanted to hear. How he didn't know that already, I don't know. He seems to be omnipotent sometimes and less than omnipotent in others. Um, then we get... A description of the gnomes. Uh, the gnomes in Kryn are some of my favorite characters. They're an uh, extremely fascinating race. In Ancelon, it's only one group of gnomes. They're the gnomes who build these fantastic machines that don't really do anything sometimes with cogs and wheels that don't do anything except spin. You know, imagine steampunk created by a madman that serves almost... The things they create, yes, they work, but they do a bunch of superfluous things that should they'll shoot gouts of steam out and you know just it's just for shits and yeah basically because they can't stay focused long enough in talitus you have two different kinds of gnomes you have them and then you have the other kind who are more sane and they you know the stuff they build works but it's more simple and the the gnomes who build the fantastical things look at their brethren as having no imagination so in in this world are there underpants gnomes (laughs) because they didn't seem to have a plan either (laughs) collect underpants (laughs) Profit, profit. <laughs> I love this. Um, but the Knights of Salamnia have a great uh, relationship with the gnomes. Uh, that's one of the reasons they gave them this. Quote, the gnomes had lived in Mount Nevermind for as long as they can remember. And since they were the only ones who cared, they were the only ones who counted. Certainly they were they were there when the first knights arrived in Sancrest, traveling from the newly created kingdom of Salamnia to build their keeps and fortress along the westernmost part of their border. Always suspicious of outsiders, the gnomes were alarmed to see a ship arriving upon their shores bearing hordes of tall, stern-faced, warlike humans. Determined to keep what they considered a mountain paradise secret from the humans, the gnomes launched into action. Being the most technologically minded of the races on Kryn, they are noted for having invented the steam power engine in the coiled spring. The gnomes first thought of hiding within their mountain caverns, but then had a better idea. Hide the mountain itself. After several months of an unending toil by their greatest mechanical geniuses, the gnomes were prepared. Their plan? They were going to make their mountain disappear. It was at this junction that one of the members of the Gnomish Philosopher's Guild asked if it wasn't likely the Knights would have already noticed the mountain, the tallest on the island. Might not the sudden disappearance of the mountain create a certain amount of curiosity in the humans? This question threw the Gnomes into turmoil. Days were spent in discussion. The question soon divided the Philosopher Gnomes into two factions. Those who believed that if a tree fell in the forest and no one heard it, it still made a crashing sound, and those who believed it didn't. Just what this had to do with the original question was brought up on the seventh day, but was promptly referred to committee. I love, I love. That's absolutely the best. They're so befuddled, and you know. Um, meanwhile, the mechanical engineers in a huff decided to set the device off anyhow, and thus occurred the day that is still remembered in the Atlas of Han- San Sancris, when almost everything else was lost during the cataclysm as the day of rotten eggs. 
On that day, an ancestor of Lord Gunther woke up wondering sleepily if his son had fallen through the roof of the hen house again. This had happened only a few weeks before. The boy had been chasing a rooster. You take him down to the pond, Gunther's after ancestor told his wife sleepily, rolling over in bed and drawing the covers up over his head. I can't, he said drowsily. The chimney's smoking. It's in that both fully... Both fully wake up, realizing that the smoke filling the house was not common, coming from the chimney, and that the ungodly odor was not coming from the hen house. Along with every other resident of the new colony, the two rushed outside, choking and gagging with the smell that grew worse by the minute. They could see nothing, however. The land was covered in the thick yellow smoke, redolent of eggs that had been sitting in the sun for three days. Within hours, everybody in the colony was deathly sick from the smell. Packing up blankets and clothes, they headed for the beaches. Breathing those fresh salt, salt breezes, thankfully, they wondered if they could ever go back to their homes. While discussing this and watching anxiously to see if the yellow cloud on the horizon might lift, the colonists were considerably startled to see what it appeared to be an army of short, brown creatures stagger out of the smoke to fall almost lifeless at their feet. The kindly people slammed immediately went to the aid of the gnomes, and thus did the two races of people living on Sancris meet. Um, <laughs> I love that interaction. It's very whimsical, you know. Um, the gnomes speak very rapidly. They're imagine them as a a race of Albert Einstein's or, or geniuses that they they're operating on a different level. So they can't really communicate well, and they have so many ideas that it all comes like. And their language is like that. It's just a string of words, and humans just like whoa, you know. So we have a the way the mountain got its name, where they live, goes thusly. Um, quote they spoke so rapidly that the knights at first thought they were speaking a foreign language In, instead of doubt turned to be, it turned out to be common spoken at an accelerated pace the reason for this became obvious when an elder male made the mistake of asking the gnomes the name of their mountain roughly translated it went something like this a great huge tall mound made of several different strata of rock which of which we have identified granite obsidian quartz with other traces of rock we are still working on that has its own internal heating system which we are studying in order to copy someday that heats the rock up to temperatures that convert it into both liquid and gaseous states which occasionally come down to the surface and flow down the side of the mountain great huge tall mound never mind the, the elder said hastily never mind Mind. The gnomes were impressed. To think that these humans could do something so gigantic and marvelous into something so simple was wonderful beyond belief. And so the mountain was called Mount Nevermind from that day forth to the vast release of the Gnomish Mapmakers, Mapmakers Guild. That's a lot. Um, so that's where we're in this time. The dragon orb is in the hands of the gnomes and a horrified uh, Fizban and a fascinated Tasselhoff are on their way to find out what is going on. Thank <laughs> you.